is uh, introducing the political context of Taiwan and the Taiwan's uh, what we call the Gov Zero Civic Movement. And then I'll use one particular example, a crowdsource dictionary, to illustrate. And then I'll talk about the Sunflower Movement. Uh, is there anybody here who have heard of the Sunflower Movement? Um, Okay, we, we occupied the Congress for 22 days, and it's one of the very few uh, occupies that is successful, uh, defined in, in the sense that first we reach our goals, and also we have a stronger consensus after the occupy compared to before the occupy. And then uh, I'm going to talk about the national level politics that changed because of the occupy. Uh, and uh, in particular, I'm going to talk about how we use the same technology that empowered the occupy <coughs> to talk with uh, transnational issues like with Uber and with Airbnb and with the other uh, globalized uh, factors. So, um, and uh, before I, I, I begin, I would like to to, to know uh, how everybody prefers themselves to be called or recorded. So, so I'm Audrey and... Uh, I'm Michelangelo and I'm also working in Empathia Project. I, I can use my, my name, Michelangelo, uh -huh. sounds... Uh, sure. Artistic. Uh, artistic. 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 Mm. <laughs> okay. Great. I'm Valdemar, it's a pleasure. Mm -hmm. And you come from Brazil? No, no, I'm from Brazil. I'm Bruno, and I'm studying sociology, social movements. I'm Jared. Hey, but people will be playing. Okay. Great. <laughs> I'm also a member of the project Empathia. Okay. I'm also Wish, I'm the technical coordinator of Empathia project. So, and I'm very interested in trying to understand from someone who also has some some technical background how this government and citizens' involvement, how can we uh, handle this in, in the ICT, and uh, I'm very, very interested in mm -hmm. receiving your, your feedback and your mm -hmm. experience. Mm -hmm. Good. I'm uh, Andre, mm -hmm. not a new, but similar. Uh, <laughs> I work as a project manager here, here at SESH, and, mm -hmm. uh, and, I, and I also Work with the with the empathic project. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty Alright, so uh, without further ado, I'll just go into my talk and at any point, please uh, just um, stop me if I start using three-letter acronyms or, <laughs> and, or if I'm talking too fast or... <laughs> yes, we could have that bill, yes. And, and, and also, uh, if, if, if people are interested in getting more details into any particular slide, we just stop in that slide and start doodling. And uh, if I look at people and feel that you, you feel bored, then I will just fast-forward that particular uh, section. Okay, so, um, fork. Here uh, means uh, in the ICT um, context to take something that is already here 
not eliminating, not countering, but taking it, it's doing to some direction, but we take it to another direction. And so it, when we take to another direction, uh, we experiment, it may fail, it may succeed, but the uh, uh, most important thing about the name fork is that uh, we also uh, open to the possibility of the original uh, maintainer, this is calling merging back our work, because the way it was made to work in the ICT industry was by people abandoning part or all of their copyright. So this is like um, this week in, in Paris is Fashion Week, right? So, um, and uh, in many jurisdictions, uh, like in the U.S. and in uh, Taiwan, actually, uh, any fashion uh, designs cannot be kept copyrighted because it's uh, a craft. This is something you, you use every day, so you cannot copyright this design. You cannot copyright a type of sleeve or something. So anything that shows in the Fashion Week gets copied the next week by other designers, right? Because there's no copyright protection. But exactly because of that, we see a lot of forking going on in the fashion industry. Anything that catches on, be it a color, a style, something, it becomes uh, experimented in very different ways. But then if some of the good ideas emerge, then, then it becomes just part of everybody's wearing, not designer clothes, but it becomes the, the fashion uh, of the year or something. So that is how the fashion industry already works. And the open source movement in the ICT industry is trying to use the same model as the fashion designers do uh, to make the open source work uh, so that people who write programs to do uh, user designs and so on can also experiment with all different directions based on existing work and only the good ideas would be merged back to the next version of its original project. So this is a very um, interesting idea primarily used in the ICT industry, but the way uh, we work in Taiwan is that we apply this idea to the government, to the society, to the governance uh, procedure. Now, um, I'm literally from the future. Uh, I'm uh, eight hours uh, in the future, uh, which is Taiwan uh, and in this place. And then uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm very happy to be here, um, jet lag notwithstanding. Uh, but uh, the, the point here is that uh, in Taiwan, because uh, we are a very young democratic country, uh, we lifted the martial law in 1989, and then the first presidential election is in 96. So basically, people only have less than 20 years of experience with representative democracy. They are not very good at it. So when we start to introduce the fork the government idea with direct democracy, with deliberative democracy, with participatory democracy, it was not like uh, representative democracy has 200 years of tradition and now we're introducing some of its 20 years of uh, like a challenger. But it's like representative democracy has 20 years and direct democracy also have 20 years. So they're like on par with each other so that we can say, okay, we take a better idea here and the government is much more willing to listen because they don't have a long tradition to, to uphold. Now, something about myself. Uh, I, I've been working in the ICT industry for 20 years uh, and retired uh, in 2013. Uh, that means that I started working in 1994 uh, uh, as an entrepreneur. Uh, so when I uh, retired, uh, I, I do what retired people do. I start to work on charities, you know, voluntary work, uh, caring about the community, uh, making dictionaries, you know, <laughs> things that retired people do. 
And uh, but because of the the my uh, ICT career was built around open source and free software, uh, naturally I do also my volunteer work in the same way as I do uh, my ICT work. And so this becomes a very uh, interesting factor for me because then I started talking to the very uh, vibrant uh, community in Taiwan, where we call the voluntary sector, which is people. Uh, you know, not based on uh, taxing and redistribution and not on exchanging of money to services, but just by people donating their time, right? That is the voluntary sector. <clears throat> but the magic thing with open source is that when I start making, for example, a dictionary as an open source project, which I'll talk about in the next talk, uh, people in the first sector could very easily, uh, the academics could very easily take the product and then make it part of the Oxford of University Press dictionaries, which is a non-profit non uh, academic endeavor. Or when I make uh, other deliberation platforms open source, then the National Development Council in Taiwan is free to take it. And then this is the subject of another talk. But not only the first sector, the private sector is also free to take whatever research we did as part of this and make it to so that theory uh, speaks better languages uh, in uh, in part of its process, or uh, this is social text, uh, a social computing company. So the the idea is that while I work all in the voluntary sector because if my work is free for everybody to use, I was able to build much stronger connections to the first sector, the public sector, and the private sector as well. So that is the basic mode uh, of the cross sectoral partnership. Is that okay? Am I making sense? Okay, that's great. <laughs> okay, so um, I started learning uh, computer programming when I was eight years old uh, in in nineteen eighty nine, and uh, when I got uh, my first computer uh, as a gift from my dad, uh, he he then went to Beijing for for the first time uh, in his life to to cover this very interesting student movement that was going on, uh, and then we we all know how the student movement ended, right? It's the the Tiananmen. Um, Massacre. Uh, so, but he he got back to Taiwan in time. So I still have a father. But uh, but but he then took a, a strong interest in civic movement democratization. So uh, he decided to do his PhD in Germany, studying the dynamic of the Tiananmen movement. And when he finds his professor in Germany, uh, he visited Berlin. And something else happened uh, in, in the same year, right? The burning wall fell, and uh, some people say it's because of the Beijing uh, massacre that the, the German people decide not to, to do the, the repeat the same mistake. And so uh, they were somewhat peacefully uh, uh, democratized. So, um, and then I also moved to Germany to study with my father, and so because that's his PhD thesis. Uh, is about interviewing all the people who were activists in Tiananmen who flew to, to Paris, to Germany, to other places when they uh, continued their study. They were just really students, right? So they studied in all sorts of different sciences, but with debate on how to make the use of their uh, what they learned to help the, the democratization process, because certainly the way that they choose to in the first did not work. So we talked a lot about what kind of ways would work. And um, so I come back to Taiwan in '93, and um, that was a very interesting time because 
that was uh, the first time in Taiwan when the internet access was made available to everybody. But that is not specific to Taiwan. It's the entire world was getting on the internet at the same uh, year. And but the the thing in Taiwan is that we have a uh, education system that I was never fitting in. But I found on the internet this very interesting project called the Gutenberg Project. It is a bunch of people typing the books and usually in the public domain, published before the First World War, and they digitize all the books for free for everybody to to use and to read. And that becomes my primary education. And once I started to to learn this way, uh, the textbooks just lose their attraction <laughs> to me because that was how how knowledge was being generated. And so in '94, uh, when Tim Berners-Lee uh, invented the web and introduced to to everybody, I found that all the researchers uh, who work on those classics are online the same time as I am. They were publishing their preprints on the web and have published their email addresses. And because the email was uh, the web was so young, everybody was very eager to know each other. So uh, we we worked a lot on all sorts of different things, from linguistics to to AI to uh, all sorts of different um, philosophy, everything, mathematics. And the beauty of it is, uh, across the internet, nobody knows that I'm a 13 year old. So <laughs> they they treat me like a professor to another professor, and right? we we just did work uh, together. And so that becomes so addictive that I decided to to quit school because the school takes you know ten years be, uh, for for, the, for for me to reach that level, and also it would take another ten years for the cutting edge research to become a textbook to be taught uh, in university or something uh, from the preprints to um, the dissemination of, of knowledge. So uh, I quit school and I helped to, to build the World Web because I uh, took so much from the web, I want to give back. Uh, and I, I'm sure that only the most geeky people will recognize all the projects that I've worked on. <laughs> but uh, I think this one in particular is, uh, had a made a lasting impact that probably everybody knows about, it's the Wikipedia project where people use the same open source idea but use it to produce uh, human knowledge. So, uh, but there is one common thing in all those different projects I worked with is that it's facilitating a safe space where nobody could censor each other's speech or drive a tank or something, right? Uh, to to stop other people from talking. And so, in this relatively safe space, we can learn from each other and just try one and time and many times until we have something that's working. So before Wikipedia, there were at least ten different projects like Wikipedia that I participated. In personally, none of them worked, but uh, the Wikipedia some, somehow clicked. But it's okay because over the internet, it costs nothing to fail. It is not a scarcity uh, economy, so we just keep trying until we get something that is acceptable to the world. Now, this is my uh, colleague uh, Liu Jiahua, who is the um, primary trainer of facilitators of uh, participatory and also deliberative democracy in Taiwan, and she said. Behind every technology, we should identify the values that uh, identifies why we're pursuing this kind of uh, technology. And so my value was very stable <laughs> for the past 20-something years. It's just uh, this value of the early internet that it was built through rough consensus. So that's all about me. Um, is that okay? People are generally okay. So uh, the first talk I'd like to share with you is the God Zero story. Uh, in Taiwan, uh, in 2013, uh, there's maybe 90% of internet users on Facebook. So it's the most 
popular Facebook uh, place in the world. And there's a prediction that says by the end of this decade, there will be more Taiwanese Facebook users than Taiwanese people. Yeah, that means that well, more, we have more, the problem with cars. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, but at least Facebook accounts doesn't create you know congestions. So um, the the idea is that people have more than one account, of course. So so um, but because everybody's on Facebook. And there's a lot of activist people, bloggers, civic uh, media people. They were very influential, like the, the author Zhang Chun here. Anything that he writes about the politics on Facebook gets any number of likes and shares and so on. But uh, so, of course, Wired interviewed him, saying, you know, you're a um, very famous writer and sometimes a political commentary uh, reaches any number of people. So do you think it would be a catalyst for civic participation? But he was very uh, cynical because he thinks that people who share and like his political writings are not the same people who would go to the streets. And when he calls people to the streets, the call to the people to the streets posts gets, you know, hundreds of thousands of likes, but 10 people came or something like that. So, so the conversion rate is really, really, really low. And he says that is because people are, are so lazy. They, they would spend only at most one minute of their time on Facebook in response to any call to action. And calling them to go on street takes more than one minute. So they would just click like and share and feel as if they have participated. This is what we call clicktivism, right? And so um, he thinks the idea is that we, we need something practical that allows lazy people to engage in an action that makes a difference. So this is called one minute limit. Now, the Gov Zero is basically a movement that builds ways for lazy people to engage in real action. And I'll take one very concrete example. This example um, is called a CAPTCHA. Uh, I assume everybody know what a CAPTCHA is. This is a way uh, to tell that you're a human, not a robot, by typing in some uh, random numbers or text from an image. Uh, it works until maybe last year, because this year AIs are better than human for this, so this doesn't work anymore. But it used to be that this tells a human uh, from computers. So what we did was that we built a, a website that asks people to just type here um, whatever they see from the CAPTCHA box and then click enter. And we say when you do that, you're saving the country. Because what this is, is the campaign finance record of all the elections that came before in Taiwan, which were kept in a paper-only form in this building, the corrective, uh, yuan, the, the corrective auditing organ. And the law that mandates this kind of sunlight, uh, you know, campaign finance record was done in an era with only papers and Xerox printers. So the law, the bill says, anybody can walk into this building and require a photocopy of the, you know, table of the campaign finance record, but you cannot download it, you cannot take a USB disk or anything. Now, of course, people propose change to the law so that we can download it over the internet. But if you think about it, the only negative stakeholder of this change are the parliament legislators. So while the entire nation wants this, the legislators, they schedule it, but they never really debate it. It's always the last bill to be debated by the end of the session, so it's never really actually voted on. So it kept that way. So instead of rallying or protesting or something, we decided to do something. We sent people there to print these out 
and then we scan it and we ask people to digitize it. So to do what the government would do, but do it ourselves. This is the idea of forking the government. So this takes only five seconds and you feel you're saving the country. Now, when we take the print out like this, uh, A4 paper, uh, I tried it would take maybe two minutes or three minutes to type it as a Excel, uh, something like a spreadsheet. It's too much. If we ask people to do this over the internet, nobody would come. Well, we know because we tried. But then we, we used uh, technology, OpenCV, uh, to cut this into bite-sized tasks, what we call tofu. And then for each one, you would just take five seconds. So it's the same amount as a like, or as a share, or as a comment on Facebook. But instead of, you know, seeing more cute cat pictures, you can feel you're saving the country. So um, that draws a lot of people. And in fact, when we built a gamification website of this data, we, uh, if people here have played Farmville or Candy Crush or any of those games, you know that as long as you have a progress bar and the counter, the countdown, and says how many people are playing with you, people will spend all night not sleeping, doing some very repetitive task just to see the progress bar reach 100%. So this is human nature. So basically, it became very addictive. And then, so people were calling each other to, to save the country by, by, by playing this game. So, and then we have uh, a lot of designers who, who made very cute banners of tofu uh, to call people to, 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 to action. So uh, in the first 24 hours, the first batch that we brought out from the corrective building, like uh, more than 300,000 records, were digitized by 9,700 people in 24 hours. And this, this kind of OCR technology, we call it the otaku character recognition. Otaku is a Japanese word meaning nerd. So this is geeks. So basically geeks who has nothing to do but just swiping their phone or something helped to do the character recognition. And now we have the complete uh, campaign finance record of the past elections. Now, of course, when we have this data and publish this data, the corrective yuan uh, said, you know, this is not so good idea that you do this because while you can say every tofu has at least three people looking at it, two of them must agree and so on, you cannot be 100% sure. This, you cannot be 100% sure this is actually what was printed. And, but what we said was, okay, so you publish it. That then you can be 100% sure. And before you do this, we will keep doing this civil disobedience because there really is nothing illegal of you know, this kind of uh, work. So now that they feel the pressure, uh, we started doing a lot of uh, data analysis based on this kind of data, we can correlate any legislators uh, with the kind of donation they came, the individual donations, how it correlates to their portfolio, their stock options that they have purchased, the voting records that they did, and also when the campaign finance came from large corporations, we also have a network uh, that says the holdings of those products, uh, of, of those corporations and we also because each legislator in some counties have this recommendation where they could recommend the building and constructions so we also correlate the building of constructions and the owner of those companies versus the company that have donated to the legislator so this became kind of useful right <laughs> uh, so that you can decide what kind of legislators you really want for your city and then 
at the election uh, of 2004. So, yes. Yes. yes, I have a doubt on, on the issue of uh, timeline. Mm -hmm. So, um, what you were analyzing first mm -hmm. was the system of donations of the campaign. Yeah, okay. yes. But the other one that you show us, mm -hmm. uh, last one, mm -hmm. uh, was about uh, during the legislation mm -hmm. what they asked to be done with the public money. Exactly. So you had to take like five years time. That means uh, because you, you have to analyze what the legislator did during the, the mandate. Exactly. No? Exactly. Yes. So you took uh, some years. Yes. Uh, so so yes, that's a great question. So when we do the voting guide, uh, as Gio said, we could only really uh, do this before and after analysis for people who are going to be reelected. So so that we can we can correlate their actual performance. For people who are uh, going running for the first time. Uh, we cannot do the same kind of analysis for, for obvious reasons. But many people run for legislator, uh, but before they're running for legislator, they, they are running for the county or a country councillor or a city level councillor. So there is still a track record uh, on the national level, even if they're running for the first time for the parliament. They also already have a campaign finance record level on the local government before. So, so you yeah. started backwards from uh -huh. the one that were candidates? Exactly. Okay, so you chose the, the, the new candidates uh -huh. and you see uh, how many of them had the past. So, I mean, the lucky one were those that were running for the first time because they didn't have any control on mm -hmm. their previous mandate because there was no mandate. But, but on the other hand, that also was the more disadvantaged ones, usually, right? Yeah. When, when they're running for the first time. Yes. And, and this, is, this kind of oversight is a net negative to, to people's political capital. So this actually, as you said, these people are lucky, but when they're doing the campaign finance uh, uh, planning and so on, they were doing it under the pressure that they will be compared with the people they're running with. Because by the end of the campaign, within 30 days, we will publish everything that they have done during the campaign. And so they, they must be like very careful because otherwise it will look very bad, even if they are elected. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's funny because what, uh, what I imagine is uh, instinctively, I think that because uh, we have a prejudice against uh, representative politics, uh, I imagine that uh, somehow you were rebalancing the problems of the newcomers uh, because you were reducing the, 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 the image of transparency of the the, the one that previous government, exactly. the, so, the establishments. But uh, uh, there were, for example, cases in which uh, you could show that there were, for example, no direct relation between the funding and what they had done. So, uh, did someone emerge as particularly honest uh, or not uh, involved right. in a sort exactly. of mafia? That, that, that's a that's a great great question. <laughs> so. Yes. So, uh, for the, for example, for the city level voting in, in the end of two, 2014, there's a record number of independents running. And even the independent won the Taipei, the capital uh, city mayor, was a surgeon who never participated in the politics before. So, um, and, and I think the environment was such that when each county and or each city click into here, you see 18 precincts and 87 people running. Uh, when you click into it, you will see uh, the analysis as, as we talk about, but also a discussion board under every candidate. So people would crowdsource extra uh, information uh, based on the, what, what the uh, public record and things like that. And the primary use of this is that there were one legislator 
who said actually the one that I was showing on the photo, uh, who who said that he is uh, unbiased, he is bipartisan. He 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 is not a party uh, member. He often votes against his party line. And then we go back to the legislative record and found that he never really did that. And then, but he was saying this on public television because. Before, in mainstream media, you can get away with saying anything because people are not fact-checking it. And if people are fact-checking it, it's already past the news cycle anyway. So, so people won't pay attention to the corrections even. But with this kind of technology, when as soon as that person starts saying this, the commenter started saying uh, below, saying that, but that is not the case. And his office has to issue uh, a correction saying, oh, we, not, we don't mean by the previous, because he was, uh, you know, five terms, right? We, we don't mean the previous term. We, uh, we, we mean the terms before that. And then uh, we, we speed up the digitization. And in the uh, two, uh, 24 hours after that, we digitize everything uh, in the previous terms. And found out he really never against, voted against the party line in any of the previous terms. And so, so that becomes a... a uh, tremendous pressure uh, on the legislators to to watch what they speak uh, publicly about their past records, because whereas before it would take days or weeks of news cycle to correct or to to find the flaws in their speech, now it's a matter of hours or even minutes, uh, and that changed the dynamics. Yeah. So people would would click into it and say. Okay, my precinct has 22 people running for counselor. And after I see this website, I now only have to choose between two because people become much more informed and informed in a very quick way uh, of what kind of uh, legislator state they really want. And so this negates somewhat the, the uh, mainstream media on uh, representative democracy. And uh, we can also see which legislator received campaign donation from their own parties. So we can analyze the Nationalist Party versus the DPP Party. And the red one was a, uh, I, I must say, ex-mobster, uh, because it's not really a, a mobster now, uh, an ex-mobster who is very rich, so he can uh, finance his own um, campaign. So the, the idea is that we, we make it very clear who is getting uh, how much money from what. But this kind of crowdsourcing of, you know, campaign finance records, of the news, and so on, um, is not limited to uh, domestic policies. When we're doing a uh, campaign finance record, we get contributions from outside Taiwan also, because you don't really have to know Chinese if you can read digits. You can help us digitizing the, the campaign finance records. So when uh, the international community needs help, we also uh, help to, to do, uh, for example, this is working with the humanitarian OpenStreetMap team. OpenStreetMap is like Wikipedia. It's a crowdsourced uh, map. And when Nepal had this earthquake, all the major maps like Google Map, Bing Map, or Apple Map only really have the mapping data around Kathmandu and uh, you know the major city connections. They really don't have uh, the streetcar doesn't really drive <laughs> to those rural areas. But those were the hits most hard by the earthquake. So what the HOT team did uh, in conjunction with the local chapters uh, was that um, we divided the satellite image that was taken before the earthquake into very small, again, dofu. And then we let people who have never mapped for, for their life uh, take a, a half-hour course 
and then start to look at just one tiny piece of a satellite image and mark the roads and the buildings on it. That's all we ask them to do. And then, <clears throat> again, just like the Tofu OCR project, it has to be two or three people looking at the same grid, and then a mapping expert will do a review cycle and so on. And, but all this was done in 24 hours. And then after 24 hours of the earthquake, the satellite company donated the post-earthquake satellite image. That is the first time after desert's recovery we get donation in such short time frame. So for the second day, uh, people focus on the post-quake imagery, doing exactly the same thing. But now marking which roads are broken and which buildings or camps have appeared, whereas there were nothing before on that grid. And so on the third day, when the uh, United Nations, the Red Cross uh, field team came, they have a open street map on their mobile phone that shows which roads are broken so you cannot really enter there and where are the refugees uh, gathering so you, you best uh, deploy your logistics there. And this is something that couldn't really be done with the ordinary helicopter or any of this kind of work. This has to be done on a satellite level. And so of those, you know, 2,000 mappers, maybe 200 of them were from Taiwan and uh, our um, uh, president-elect uh, Dr. Tsai Ing-wen, uh, she was uh, still only a candidate, presidential candidate at that time. Uh, she, she helped a lot on Facebook and on other social media to call for her supporters to, to do this kind of humanitarian work. What I'm saying is that with this kind of tool, the, the boundary of, of nations no longer exists as long as we can turn something into a crowdsourced project, we can do this kind of crowdsourced work anywhere and we can map all the buildings and all the roads that was impacted uh, by the Nepal earthquake. So um, using these as examples, I want to uh, say that GovZero, this movement, is really a way for three different kinds of people to learn from each other something that they have been missing in their previous lives. So the, the core people, the first of our people who started registering the domain of GovZero.tw <laughs> had a very simple idea. All the government websites in Taiwan ends with GOV.tw. So for example, the environmental agency is this. Now, if you change in your browser the O to a zero, you get into the shadow government that is built by GovZero. And it shows exactly the same data as the environmental agency, but whereas the environmental agency shows just tables and you know readings and uh, you know very boring things, in the GovZero environmental agency, you see pretty pictures. So <laughs> this is like the, the air pollution level at this point. So people use that in news broadcasting in every day because it was very useful and it's very a lot of fun. You can see the PM 2.5, the O3, the rainfall, whatever. Right? And then, so um, this, and you can look at the, because it's open source, you can look at the data and the code and if you don't like the color or you don't like the font or if you don't like, uh, you know, the way that the progression was spent, uh, you can contribute very easily. So, so you can customize the feature. Exactly, exactly, yes, yes, you can just click the edit button. And so it, it didn't start this way. Uh, it started in a much more geeky way. But then we have professional designers who are very much into this Japanese comics and manga called Evangelion. 
uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion, and then so he used the font from the the Eva Evangelion font, so that it, it now looks like something from a cyberpunk uh, design. <laughs> so, um, but but yeah, but but that was the idea. Anybody who who want to make contributions, make contributions. And this is much cooler than the government website for obvious reasons. So, right. The data were the same. We're yes, taken, yeah, exactly taken the same, the same source. Yes, yes. Okay. Yeah, we, we do web scrapers or whatever to take data from the government. But we present it in a way that's open data and that allows everybody to, to customize. So uh, while uh, in the previous thing you show us, you created new data, mm -hmm. for example, in Nepal, in this case, uh, uh, the, the data source was not put into that. Mm -hmm. You were uh, uh, accepting mm -hmm. the data and just uh, helping them to be more clear and visible. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and also mashing up it with other uh, sources of data. Uh, so, yeah. And, uh, so, and it works with all the, with the major government organs. So, for example, the legislation is LY, and so if you change to LYG.gov0TW, you see all the bills being debated, and it's like a shopping cart. You can see a progress bar <laughs> where the bill is, and then you can see a, a difference that shows in red and green uh, the before and after bill. You know the way geeks like it. So, so that, that was, that was the, the initial uh, group of people. But um, it, it's not just the, the geeks. Because while we are the open source uh, hands-on hackers, we were actually not domain experts at civic participation. The traditional NGO people, the traditional mobilizers, organizers, people like that, they were uh, very far from us. There were very little overlap between people who actually understand environmental campaigning, like the Greenpeace people, versus the people who do this environmental visualization. So we actually got a lot of things wrong in, in our first uh, tries because we, we were not environmental experts. So we had to um, make contact. And uh, we made contact first with the people uh, in the civic media, like the bloggers that I mentioned, who has this very cynical view because they thought, you know, the software cannot really change anything. Facebook doesn't really motivate people. And then we say, uh, if you go to our hackathon and present your ideas, we will help to amplify your idea and then to reach more people and to actually make a cont uh, a real impact. So basically, we teach them the, this hands-on uh, spirit of not just writing blogs, but doing something. Uh, and then we engage with the social activists who are, again, very hands-on, very public-spirited, but their main problem was that they don't trust strangers. Um, and this is a fact. And uh, they, 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 there's a lot of, you know, I wouldn't say schism, but uh, like doubts of, of people like going to different directions or misleading data or whatever. So the first thing they ask is always, how do we know that our opposition movement will not feed us fake data or things like that? And so uh, the way we, we uh, work with them is that that showing that with sufficiently number of people and ICT technology, we can build a peer review system that is safe against vandalism and doesn't have they, they you know, uh, care about. So we teach them the idea of open source while they teach us the idea of the public spirits, the areas of concern. And because Gov Zero 
is using this domain, we are not limited in our uh, projects, right? Because for every government agency or ministry, there is some uh, social activists working on that area. It's not really limited to just elections or democracy. It could be environment, agriculture, education, whatever you name it. There's a ministry for it. There is a GovZero website for it. So this is three very different kind of people, but because we learn from each other, we generally uh, build something that is useful uh, for all the three different groups of people. And the way we do it is with very good food. Uh, so <clears throat> we, we hold every month hackathons, and the large hackathons that happens every odd month, like in March, it's March 5, the Open Data Day, we have anywhere between 100 and 600 people in the same building, in the same room. And we use the standard, what we call the uh, open space technology. Um, and um, yeah, you'll be aware that I, I don't use three letter acronyms. Open space technology. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's spelled out in full. <laughs> and uh, uh, so we have this large uh, room where we invite people from all walks of life to join and to share food with us. So um, when people ask about where do GovZero gets the money, well, it's our campaign finance. <laughs> we say that uh, we only spend money on really good quality food. So it's not that much money. We, we don't spend money on anything else. We use free software. We don't buy, uh, you know, commercial solutions. So it's all zero or very near zero cost. But we spend a lot of effort and time to think about very good food. Because a month after a monthly hackathon, most people forget about all the projects and all the people. But they will remember the food. If, if the food is particularly good, they will be inclined to join us on the next month. If the food is so bad, they, they say bad words about our community. So, so you rely on low instincts of people. Yes, yes the, the very basic instinct of people. <laughs> yeah, very good coffee and so, and so on. We have a, a, a special uh, domain uh, called GovZero. Dot cafe <laughs> that, uh, uh, where you can issue and print and get this very high quality instant coffee with Scott Zero printed on it is our souvenir and if you go to this web address we ask for donations for, for the Hackathon's coffee and food so um, that, that's our fundraising uh, way and when we raise funds and spend it on high quality food we spend everything uh, immediately so we don't keep uh, capital so when we run another month in the hackathon, we ask again for donations. And for your donations, you the only thing you get is a guaranteed ticket to the hackathon. So, so this is like purely without commercial interest. And uh, because the hackathons were sometimes very popular, they got sold out in hours. So a guaranteed ticket to a hackathon is still very valuable. So people were willing to sponsor for that, for the good food. So um, what I'm saying is that with this way of, of the thing in common between the social activists and the free software people and the civic media is they love good food and good coffee. So they come for the food. And uh, when, when they join us early in the morning in the hackathons, uh, as I explained, the large ones every two months is 100 people. The every other month is maybe 50 people is smaller. Uh, you will see a bunch of stickers on the large hackathons. And those stickers, uh, each one is like this high. You will uh, 
take the sticker that describes you. For example, uh, maybe I'm good at storytelling. Maybe I'm good at making music. Maybe I'm good good at coding Python or, or something, right? And then uh, you take the stickers that represents your interests uh, and put it on your shoulder. And uh, there's yes, and there's also write-in stickers called nobody. So so if you 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 have a pr proficiency that we don't uh, have listing here. Well, you can you can write it yourself, and then if sufficient people use this, then we'll print it on our next version of the stickers. So uh, this goes through many iterations. Yeah, so this uh, this yeah. idea of the stickers uh, uh, have two two issues that could be interesting for us. The first one is that in some participatory budget in Germany, mm -hmm. uh, people has stickers uh, to declare their belonging to lobbies or potential uh, lobbies, for uh, example, yes. uh, membership of an association of shopkeepers, trade uh, unions, and, okay. yes. and in order that when they speak, uh, when they talk in public, people know uh, from what position they are speaking, if they have one. Mm -hmm. The second issue is that normally open space technology uh, have the two-feet uh, law, that means that if you cannot contribute to a self-organized group, you go away in the next one. But here, you can see what kind of people there is there. And if you think that there are too many engineers in that area, too many cooks mm -hmm. yeah. in that area, you can move not for a... Uh, for feeling or not at ease mm -hmm. in the group, but, but because you think that the group is too homogeneous. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. This is a, a diversifying way of, okay. of, the, of the walking group. This is not uh, voting, this is uh, diversification. Yeah. So when you uh, join for the first time, you will take a, a deer sticker, uh, and then when you're here uh, for many times, a veteran, you would take a Taiwan bear uh, sticker. And so, and put it somewhere prominent. So, what are those stickers for? <coughs> the the process is all day, sometimes two days. And in the beginning of the day, everybody who has an idea, I want to do campaign financing. I want to do, you know, a recall campaign. I want to do whatever, right? Then I go on the stage, use PowerPoint or some other tools to make a pitch for three minutes. And at the end of the pitch, we ask everybody to declare how many people of what expertise do they need for this project to function. So, for example, for the public finance uh, campaigning project, they will obviously need one engineer and one designer, front-end designer, and they will need one legal people to negotiate with the corrective UN, and they will need a storyteller to turn this into a public design for the social media. That's the initial four kind of uh, talents they would need the, for it to succeed. So now, after maybe 20 projects, each present their ideas, um, people start playing musical chairs. That is to say, they crowd around the corner where the projects need those declared number of people. And you can see at a glance that this project already has an engineer. So as an engineer, go elsewhere. And or that this project really doesn't really have a storyteller. So as a storyteller, you will join them. And uh, so by the end of maybe 10 minutes, 15... Sort of markets of talents? Yeah, exactly, exactly, yes. And then by the end of maybe 15 minutes... Free markets. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, 
So uh, there will be a lot of uh, deer uh, caught in the headlight, staying at a, the, the same position, not sure where to go. <laughs> and, and there will be a lot of bears uh, coming one-on-one, -on -one, uh, joining to the side of this, this first comer and start to talk with them saying, you know, what is your concern usually? What brings you here? What is your daily life? What kind of issues you care about? Walk with me. And then <laughs> by the end of the walk, they will find themselves in the project. So, so, so that is the, the kind of mentoring that, that we do. And for like a hundred uh, people hackathon, usually maybe 40 people or 30 people will be first time uh, in the hackathon. And uh, currently the demographics is about maybe 20% engineers, 20% designers, and then uh, other people, storytellers, news media people. There's a lot of public servants now uh, and people from all walks of, uh, of life. So when they have a project now, which we call Kung, meaning a gap. And the, the reason why we don't call it a project is that people who uh, are founding projects, in Chinese at least, uh, have this notion of project leader, right? A project commissioner, a project organizer. But sometimes people just <clears throat> identify a gap and then they, they walk away because they just really have an idea and they, they work on some other thing. So they should not have authority or control on the people who actually fill the gap to, to do the actual work. So by rephrasing things this way, by identifying a gap in, in reality uh, where, where we have to hack on, uh, we erase this kind of top to bottom um, function of organization. So anybody who walk into this gap is a contributor. And then we hack for an entire day or two days. Now, after uh, the entire day or two days, every um, project has five minutes uh, at the end of the closing day to present what they have built over the day. And usually they will have a prototype already uh, and because they have the right talents. And then uh, their presentation would say, what in the next month, what is their participation policy? Some project will say, we meet every Friday after the next month. Some project would say, okay, we meet in this chat room, uh, in IRC, in Slack. Some project would say, okay, we, this is a long-term project, we just meet again on the next month's hackathon. Every project is different. Uh, but this is very important because then it connects people who already connect to the project to future meetups. So many projects have this weekly meetup where it's just three people, five people, seven people, but they, they do sprints to make the project actually happen between the large hackathons. And when you participate in those sprints or uh, meetups, you will meet more people. And then you will tell those people that hackathons are a great place. So <laughs> they will join the next month's hackathon <laughs> and identify more projects. So, so this is really is, is a circle. And, and GovZero is not an organization. This is just a way of doing things. It's just a habit, a way of living. And so anybody who, who comes as a participant and who contributes a contributor, we don't have a leader, we don't have a spokesperson. It's just space, really, online space and offline space. Um, I can show you sort of one thing. When, uh, so, uh, okay, so yeah. my, my question was quite simple. Just give us some example of projects uh, recently came up of this uh, hackathon mechanism. Just to have a, mm -hmm. I mean, because I do this kind of project have a strong ICT content, mm -hmm. uh, or uh, there are projects that are completely. Yes, that was my next slide. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> 
My, my question was different. You, you often uh, say we, and so I, I was trying to understand uh, uh, the we you mm -hmm. say what uh, is referred to, because mm -hmm. now you are talking about something which is a space of encounter yeah. and, not, uh, and not a movement. So when you say we, you talk about uh, what exactly? Yes. So in order to uh, be a GovZero project, the only requirement is if it's a coding project to use an open source license, meaning that other people can use your product without asking your permission. Uh, and if it is a non-coding uh, project, we ask people to use creative commons, which again is a way to say that people can copy your work without asking you. Um, and when, when I say we, I mean people who agree to this protocol of social, I would still say it is a movement because people say open source movement, the creative common movement, the free culture movement. And, but this is not um, specific to Taiwan or specific to Cup Zero. It is a, a global, not even global. This is a, a both global and also on the internet mixed reality kind of movement that is happening all around the world. So Cup Zero really is like a, a, a gateway into this wider uh, worldwide movement that is defined by the open source and the Creative Commons uh, free culture movements. So when I say we, I mean the people who see the way of this way of doing things and is willing to contribute or at least participate under this protocol. All right. Any other questions? Do you think the others also use we? So you, you feel an a strong identification with these principles. Mm -hmm. Do you think that this is spread around so yeah, you yeah, all yes. behave in the same yes, way? Yes, exactly. exactly. Okay. Yes. Uh, because um, we don't really have a <laughs> spokesperson. And uh, there's nobody who speaks for GovZero. Uh, and uh, when a media... And this used to confuse the media to, to no end. <laughs> they would say, okay, I would like to in uh, interview your leader. And we're like, we don't have any leaders. Uh, and, uh, and because there was a very early motto of God Zero that says, uh, don't ask why nobody is doing the work. Admit first that you are that nobody. Uh, so this is a, a combination of many different slogans before. So, uh, so, but this means that it is okay to, to, to start doing something imperfect. And so when the media people says, why, why is nobody working on this project? And we would say, okay, be that nobody. You, you come to our hackathon and you, you start the project. And so this is a way, uh, what we call, where is this better? Which is a, a core open source uh, tenant. Uh, and this is a example for you. Uh, this is the Zero's uh, Gap Zero hackathon. We count zero-based, we're geeks. So uh, the, on the Zero's hackathon, um, there is a logo of Gun Zero that was designed by two coders, two friends of mine. I wasn't uh, joining Gun Zero uh, at that time. I joined two months later. So they were uh, brilliant uh, coders. They were master hackers, but they sucks at visual design. Uh, <laughs> Anybody here can design a better logo than this. It's very difficult to get an uglier logo than this, especially with the JPEG artifact. This is so ugly. And, uh, uh, and they had the guts to print this in A1 and hanging it 
in Academia Sinica in open space as a welcome banner. You know, this is the Gulf Zero Hackathon. Come and join us. Uh, and so for the hundred or so um, 90 people joining, it became a, a very sore spot uh, because it's so ugly. And, and one of the visual designers um, wrote on social media that this is so effing ugly that I, I cannot do anything productive and, unless I make a bit better logo. So, so, so we, we infuriate a visual designer. And so, and so he, he just look at this very ugly logo, feeling completely outraged and produced uh, a, a better logo. So this is at the end of the day of the hackathon. That's his only contribution because he, he's immobilized. He cannot do anything else. Uh, so, so now he, he, he makes something better. But this is like discussion, right? This is like a, this is actually a lot like your logo. This is a, a lens that, that is viewing the society. And then this is voting, right? So, so it has some culture in it. And uh, it's much easier on the eyes. But... Then, because he abandons copyright under Creative Commons Zero, people were, were free to then iterate to improve on this uh, idea, which is very important, because this doesn't look so well on mobile phone. If you look at it in a very low resolution, it, it doesn't look like GOV or G0V anymore. It will look like GQV. So, so we registered gqv.tw just because of this, because people typed in the wrong, wrong way. So then it was iterated. A, a much better visual design was came, which looks like this. And then on low resolution, we just show the square, which is very identifiable. It's a zero, right? So, but without the two shameless people who publish their ugly work, they would not infuriate a designer. And if they do not infuriate a designer, we will not have a better logo. So it's just very minor things like this. Uh, we, we overcome the Asian culture, what we call losing face. Uh, there is nothing to lose uh, while doing something imperfect. Uh, this is uh, Elena Cohen's song that says, uh, there is a crack in everything, and that is how the light gets in, right? So, so without this imperfect thing, nobody will come and help. But if you do something a very ugly way, everybody will come and help you. So <laughs> that is the, the basic operation uh, way that goes your works. So that's the, the first hour. Uh, is it okay with people? All right. Okay, so now a, a larger project. This is a project that brought me into Gov Zero, um, and uh, it is a dictionary. Uh, it is the Ministry of Education dictionary. It is not a project that was born inside the uh, the hackathon. It was, but it was on the first hackathon, and it used to confuse the media because the first hackathon is the second hackathon, right? It's the zeros and the first. So, right. So uh, on the first, which is really the second. Hackathon, uh, we started this project called the Moedict. Uh, and by now, by last year, actually, this is an old slide. By last year, we have 7 million visits per month, and we have half a million uh, Android or iOS or Windows Phone or Symbian or it's Blackberry, whatever, users. And then uh, people really use this to teach um, in school uh, Chinese. And because Chinese in Taiwan is spoken in many, many different ways, 
there's Mandarin, there's Taiwanese Holo, there's Taiwanese Hakka, there's also the Taiwanese uh, Austronesian Aborigine Amis, and there's also Tibetan because of Tibet Tibetan Buddhism influence, and there's also uh, people from the mainland China who came to live in Taiwan, and, and so on. There, there's a lot of different ways Chinese and Austronesian uh, languages are spoken in, in, in Taiwan. And so uh, this dictionary website, this project, integrates everything together so that you can type in French or in German or in English and see the Chinese word and how the Taiwanese Hakka, Holo, Mandarin people pronounce it, the strokes of how it should be written and so on. It's a very useful uh, website. And it started in the first hackathon by uh, my very old friend, uh, Ye Ping. He was a physics professor, quantum physics, in National Taiwan University. But he joined Google Taiwan to work on the Google's cloud center in Taiwan. And after working in Google for a few years, uh, he moved to the Valley. Uh, now works on Google Analytics, I think. Uh, when he moved to the U.S., he brought his children with them, and he found that it's very difficult to teach his children Chinese when he was in the U.S. I mean, learning Chinese is hard enough, uh, but in, <laughs> learning Chinese in a, in a foreign uh, country is very difficult. And the way we learned Chinese uh, in our generation was through the Ministry of Education Dictionary, which was available as a website uh, in the Gopher Protocol. Uh, many people here will not remember this, but before the web wild web, there was Gopher, there was Archie. Those was the pre wild web kind of wild web, and that's how we learned uh, the dictionary because it was published on Gopher. But of course, after wild web came, uh, everything becomes the wild web, and so it it has a website, and that's how we learned from it. But the website was built at the dawn of the web. And so nobody really knew how to build websites at, at that point. So it was a, a uh, absurd website. But the content is top class. It is the definition of Chinese language in classical Chinese. Because of Cultural Revolution, the mainland China doesn't really retain that much material about classical Chinese anymore. It's like the, the Latin or ancient Greek of Chinese. And so this dictionary has all the citations and all the etymologies and everything about classical Chinese and how it evolved into modern Chinese. This is linguistically a, a treasure. But because its website <coughs> was built in 96, there was no idea of a bookmarking or a permanent link. So you cannot bookmark and visit again. It won't work. And because it was using a legacy encoding, there was no Unicode at that time. So all the difficult characters were done in 24 by 24 bitmaps, which you cannot copy and paste. And it doesn't support mobile phones because there were no mobile phones at that time. And if you view source, you will see it's best viewed you know, in IE5 or Netscape 4.7 plus. Uh, and the plus here is redundant because Netscape has discontinued after 4.7. So, so this is a very, very old website. I'm just trying to get through this feeling of, you know, like a, a uh, ruin or a living fossil or something of a website. And because HTTP 1.1 has not been invented at that time, the idea of a keep alive connection is not invented. So it automatically logs you out after 30 minutes of inaction to conserve server resource. Uh, but the, the, the funny thing is that there is no login button. So you will get redirected to the homepage after idling for 30 minutes, saying, sorry, we had to log you out, but there is no login button. Why are you logging me out? And, and then all the dictionary websites after this 
took this as the spec because it came then become a procurement as part of the functionality spec. So all the modern uh, websites built by the Ministry of Education in the next 10 years has the same function, even if it makes no sense now. So, so it became a, a absurd, ridiculous uh, joke of, of, of a ICT technology, even though it's a great dictionary. So Yeping basically uh, attended a hackathon from abroad. Was it a yes. useful function or... I mean, I so yeah, so switching to engineering mode. Uh, as a geek, HTTP was invented uh, in a very draft form where it was not possible to uh, automatically keep the connection between the browser and the server. This is what we call stateless, right? So you make a request, like ordering something from the menu, right? But then browser evolved the Netscape 2 or something, introduced this idea of a keep alive connection, where when you make a request, it doesn't close the connection. It will just keep it open in case you want to click somewhere else. But because of the server software were written in 96 before the HTTP 1.1 spec, it doesn't know that after you know five minutes of inaction, I just terminate this browser connection. So every browser connection was consuming one process, one resource on the server. So because the server cannot auto-disconnect, it will become overloaded if too many simultaneous connections are kept. It happens when the agency is for flight searching. Or something like that, yes. But then, uh, actually in 97, most of the modern web servers has this idea of uh, you know, it's just called uh, keep alive, colon, close. If a web server says this, the, the browser will not keep the, the connection alive. But because the website was not updated, there's no uh, budget for it after 96. So a technical problem in 96 uh, lived on for 20 years, even though they, all they have to do was to upgrade to the uh, newer version of the NCSA, later Apache, web server, nobody was around to do that. So the same function was, was there for, for the next 20 years. It was basically uh, out of maintenance. And all the staff they have uh, just knows how to buy more hardware, things like that. The, the programmers, they, they all went away. So, and I imagine this is not a Taiwan-only problem. When, when you contract out the uh, ICT solution and, and, and the funding is just for one year or two years and the team disbands and it's not open source, it becomes very difficult to get the second team to carry out the work. Sometimes they just rewrite everything. And if they rewrite everything, they ask for more budget. But if they ask for more budget and the ministry doesn't have it, what you have is a legacy system that runs for 20 years. Mm -hmm. So that's it. Okay with you guys? All right. So uh, Yeping attended the hackathon from the US, and that is when we started to do live streaming for our hackathons, because they had to uh, attend from all over the world, not just Taipei City. Uh, for that hackathon, we had Taipei and uh, Tainan and Taichung, that's three cities uh, in, in Taiwan, uh, simultaneously using this kind of telepresence. And uh, so he outlined the vision, saying that I need data collection, data cleaning, uh, structured data, and so on, you know, all the requirements. And uh, within 24 hours, uh, we, the hackers, downloaded everything from the dictionaries, and Yeping designed a JSON, that is to say, structured data that matched the HTML, and some other hacker wrote a 
program that converts the website into the structured data and some other hacker converted to the relational database and some other hacker uh, turned it into a website and also an input method extension and also an online dictionary and also an offline dictionary and also a mobile app. And all of this was done in 24 hours. And, uh, and so, so this is called rough consensus because we, we, we don't need anybody's permission. Everybody just works on whatever they need or their children need and without any uh, you know, need coordination. And, uh, and about those 24 by 24 bitmaps where we need to identify the Unicode for it, uh, we set up a Google spreadsheet that asks people to look at the pictures and then using handwriting input method or something to try to identify the Unicode uh, for those characters, right? So again, within 24 hours, uh, we had participants uh, all around the world, about 100 people. We thought it was a lot of people at that time, uh, about 100 people uh, identifying all those difficult words from pictures into uh, the, the Unicode code points so we can copy and paste the definition in the dictionary. Now, the fun thing of this is that we brought down Google Spreadsheet <laughs> because there's too many people editing in the same time and there's too many pictures. And this is going to become a, a trend. Anytime we try a new service in Gov0, we will bring down that service. So we're like the scalability testing team for new services on the internet. So for this case, I had to actually build a new uh, spreadsheet system uh, called EtherCalc. Um, so EtherCalc is like Google Spreadsheet, but because it's free software, and because you don't have to sign in, the server overhead is much lower, so people can, you know, just do whatever they want on it without incurring the same, um, you know, uh, server uh, load uh, on things. So now we face the legal problem. The reason why the Ministry of Education, nobody was doing this before, was that they say all copyrights reserved on their front page. and says you may not link to individual entries in the dictionary. Actually, you cannot link to it anyway. But they said, you know, you can just link to the homepage and all copyright reserved. Now, in Taiwan, the fair use law says you can use part, a reasonable part, of a government producing work as long as it's, you're using it for non-profiting purposes or for educational purposes. I imagine it's the same doctrine anywhere. Uh, but we're not using a part we're using 100% of that data. So correspondingly, we have to relinquish 100% of our claim. And at that time, there's an invention from Creative Commons movement called Creative Commons Zero. When people do CC Zero, they say, I relinquish even the attribution copyright. It's like it enters the public domain immediately without waiting for me to die in the 70 more years, right? And then so with CC Zero, we said all our code in the dictionary are CC0, all our data that we converted are CC0, meaning that we're really only just doing data conversion work for the government. We're not really claiming any copyright on it. So we argue this is a fair use because it's proportional to the proportion that we use, and zero, 100%. And so, so, so this is a very interesting legal case. And so, while the lawyers in the ministry are debating this subject, they took a year, uh, we, we try to say, because it's not one individual doing it, it's 30 hackers doing it, so it's called civil disobedience, right? And so, so, so we, we maintain this fair use, uh, peaceful doctrine 
by that. So now we have structured data, uh, what we call five-star data, uh, meaning that every word has a URL, has a website uh, address. So data, 资料, in Chinese, everybody know its website address in Moedic because it's just Moedic tw slash There's no need to remember. This is, again, the same hack as gov0.tw. You don't have to remember our websites. It's just government website changed. So, and with link data, open link data, when you mouse over your hover over any word in the dictionary, it will show a cross-reference of the dictionary definition in other dictionaries or in the same dictionary in a link data kind of way. So this is how we do permanent links. Now, people started showing each other definitions of words on Facebook. So uh, we did for Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, what we call an open graph uh, cover image. Now the cover image means that anybody who types Moedic TW slash meaning open data workshop. Of course, there is no such entry in the dictionary yet. So uh, instead of saying for a phone not found, we say this is definition of open, this is definition of data, this is definition of a workshop, right? And then we use beautiful calligraphic uh, to, to produce an image that is whatever you have just wrote. And this became the, the sweetheart of mobilizers everywhere. Because on Facebook, this virality is 10 times more than compared to if you just have a message without a picture, right? But if you have a picture that doesn't match your message, it could be a counter, you know, influence. But if you have a really good high quality image, maybe it's copyrighted, so that's another problem. So the mobilizers spend a lot of time searching for high quality images that match their message. Now with no edict, they don't have to do that anymore. They just say, you know, go to the streets tomorrow. And then you have a banner that says, go to the street tomorrow, look like this. And then you can use whatever message you have. And because we abandon copyright, nobody will sue you. So this becomes the preferred uh, banner tool for online mobilizers in Taiwan. Now, with this kind of technology, uh, if you think this calligraphy is not fitting your message, we offer you a whole menu of open source or free fonts. So you can you know, tailor-made the font to, to, to suit your message, whether you want it to look like very violent or very peaceful or very classic, whatever, right? So, so people use this for most mundane things, like, I feel so good today, or whatever. They just, you know, let their friends know their feelings. Uh, and so, in a, in a sense, we hack into the Facebook algorithm with this kind of dictionary technology. And when you see people uh, share like this, you can then reshare it on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+. So it went viral very easily. Now, with this kind of virality engine, um, we have 7 million visits per month. And when you have 7 million visits per month, whenever we put a call to action on the website of Moe Dictionary, even though maybe one in a thousand will donate their time, that's a lot of people. So we will start to ask people's time to digitize old dictionaries made in the 70s. We only have very low quality print version now, but we do a you know scan and then we ask people, again, just like the dofu, to adjust for the OCR because the OCR of the low quality is sometimes make you know uh, mistakes. And then so you look at the OCR 
uh, result and you correct the mistakes and you send it out and again we have the progress bar that lets everybody know that you know you're contributing to preserving the culture of the Aborigines and you're doing good work thank you and so on so uh, it worked I mean the I mean, Smeller English uh, trilingual dictionary thistic was digitized in just two two days and a half by a lot of people and then we have a electronic dictionary and so so people who love words spend a lot of time on this just doing free work right and then digitizing the dictionary that they care about and they don't even need to know amis or forsay because it's just typing in latin characters and uh, while the ministry lawyers were debating our case um they were um having a activity where they ask people to spot problems typos errors in the MOED dictionary because they're finally after 20 years trying to do a new version now within those 18 days we started a campaign uh, our version of the MOE dictionary saying we use a program to identify two entries that cites the same source but differ by one word meaning one of it is probably a typo that the computer knows which one uh, is different but it doesn't know which one is correct so we ask our readers to Google and see which one is correct and choose the one that is correct and send it out. And so we collect more than 5,000 erratas from the dictionary this way and send it all back to the ministry. They have maybe 6,000 contributions and a majority was from the Moedict. And on the day of our sending of the, uh, this dictionary errata in this huge spreadsheet, they give us an award and say, okay, what you're doing is fair use. So, because if, if they sue us, it's not against 30 hackers anymore. It's against thousands of language lovers, uh, teachers, high school students, right? So they, they cannot risk even alienating any of those people. So, because they're the core constituency of that ministry, right? So when we involve all the teachers, all the students, all the linguistics, scholars and academics, the civil disobedience become a, a national thing. And then all they can do is, okay, I give you an award. This is fair use. And so now, yeah, we digitize the Aborigine dictionary. This is the Amis Slada, meaning a square. So the, the way we do this uh, is not because a project leader like me or Pieping knows Amis or Francais or Hakka. We, we don't actually. The way we do is that we, we work on a language we know, and then we open source everything, and then any other language just take it and build their own Moedic website. So this is different from how the ministry used to do things. The ministry used to do things in a coordinated way. They have a committee of five people, and when the six people join, they have to know other five people, each one representing one language, you know, community, and there's a lot of fighting of which council member represent that minority, and some Aborigine will say we are actually two tribes, not one tribe, so it's not fair, you know, things like that. So committees have a lot of problems exactly because human beings cannot really know 30 people in the same room and have the same share of time. But with the way Moetic is doing things, which we call collaboration, is we have started something that we share, and then any other language is free to take it in whatever direction. But sometimes, like in Amis, they will have very good idea. 
And then the Mandarin dictionary will just merge because everybody relinquished their copyright into the Mandarin dictionary. And then uh, other dictionary will, will follow. And if some ideas are so fringe that is only you know useful for their community, it's still okay. They just fork the project and maintain an independent website spatially tailored to that community. So this is what we call a rough consensus. As long as people agree generally on direction, even people who collaborate with enemies uh, are, are able to, to work together by going on their, their different ways. So that's another half hour of talk. Yes. What do we do? We want to have a break? Uh, yeah. Because, uh, you know, we yeah, so, so, yeah, so, so, so let me finish with just one last slide. I already yeah, registered this domain. Uh, now, now you know what it means. So, so uh, edutw, 3du.tw. Uh, and then the, after two years, the Ministry of Education finally says, okay, all our dictionary, past, future, are released under Creative Commons. So you don't even have to do civil disobedience or fair use. We now join your movement. But it took two, hour, uh, two years and a half. Or, for example, we have an open data portal where uh, we wrote an open data license that we won't want to see from uh, all the communities in Taiwan. And the government, the National Development Council, so it is a much better license than the license they were using, which is not 100% open data definition compatible. So because they merged back the data portal from Cap Zero, uh, suddenly all the levels in the uh, city level and national level are in an open definition compatible license. And because of that, on the Open Knowledge uh, Foundation Network, OKFN, Global Open Data Index, Taiwan became, from Gov Zero was first founded, the 36th place to the 11th place to now this year, the first place. And that is because, not because we produce more data, but because all the agencies merged the Gov Zero way of doing open data, including the license and the infrastructure. So, yeah, I think I will, we will have a, a pause for maybe... Ten minutes and but people are still free to talk and ask questions. Okay. There's a great big mystery, and it sure is worrying me. This city water. This city water. I wish somebody would tell me what city water means. Daddy, you show it, sweet Mr. Daddy Bartlett. 
war did it. I wish somebody would tell me what did it, war did it.
So very interesting. Thank you. And we're just halfway, so I'm worried about yes. time. Uh, okay, we can go. This is still recording, so keep no, in mind that and people Sure, sure, sure. So, so maybe. So, this is for shooting empathy. So, we can go all the way to 5 30 or something. It's not a. Oh, we reserved all the afternoon. Yeah, I think at 5 30, I think Massimo 6, Vanessa, for example, is snowing in her village, so really? she has to go before the, the snow cover, but in the majority of us, we can. Stay here, so okay, okay. Well, it's just to learn some, and I think the next mm -hmm. slide is on the budget. Uh, yes, it's, it's, so it's, it's, it's about for us, it's more yeah, it's yeah, about so. <laughs> so, I think it's very, very interesting. It's the first time that I see a presentation about the e government and, uh, and this type of movement from people who really know what. What they are saying. So, because most of the people have no clue what is HTTP one and the difference and what, and it's important to see also that you you understand that design is also important. Because I was there when it was being done. I was part of you know I was reading all the RFCs when HTTP was being created. So, so but but yes, because the laws on the internet that how old were you? Uh, 13 or something. Yeah, the, the laws on the internet are like physical laws. They define what's possible, what's impossible. And in policy discussions, if you don't have people who know what's possible and what's not, it's But did, did you participate in ITF? Yes, but, but that's in early 2000s. Uh, 2000, I think, three or four. Yeah. Uh, more or less the same time. So you have the same age, more or less. Uh -huh. 81. I'm born in 81. I'm 82. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You look like that. Uh, no, I'm uh, 18. Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> I'm 18. Yes. <laughs> I'm 81. Okay. Um, and uh, I've been several meetings because I was working in a, a draft proposal and I didn't like the way that moves. Um, I don't know what is your opinion, but I didn't like that much ITF because. Yeah. Which working group were you on? I was in NCIS. Uh -huh. um, yeah, ITF. ITF is a standardization body. It's where it grew up the internet. Basically. It's the parliament of the internet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and the, I was with guys from Siemens and Nokia and stuff like that. And it pains me that uh, most of them are there only to, to, to work. And business, yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. So, 
Like you still have the old guys, the guys with the white hair and beard. Uh, right. I, I think, yeah, I think the IETF in, in the uh, early 90s is very different from the, the from millennials. Exactly. Yes, exactly. And uh, when, when I say uh, to the media, usually that I'm a conservative anarchist, uh, I mean that I want to conserve the 90s IETF spirit because it's it's going narrower, but, but I think we still need to keep that tradition. Because I, I saw so many stuff going around. I went something like three years in a row towards meetings, and I saw things like people discussing in the outside the meetings what they they want to be presented, right. what they need to feel, no, uh, what they can move forward to speak like, like uh, you know Dave Weiner and so on they, they were really small vendors really. so there's no, 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 no large so even though they, some of them talked about your é que agora não vê nada ele tem que pôr o computador dele acho que depois vou fazer mostrar alguma coisa e tu vês a realidade da realidade virtual os problemas participativos eles fazem por exemplo tem que fazer no aeroporto fazer as simulações de como o aeroporto passa em cima da tua casa e a pessoa põe essa e percebe como é que o aeroporto iria mudar a vida dele no dia a dia Like, we like, and, uh, 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 and, uh
acontece to é que o aeroporto seja no nada. Like we said, Tem uma área you know, a little bit of a solution to not kill you, you but with sufficient amount of particles combined, it would come as a Não consigo pensar que um contra-poder consiga, em tão pouco tempo, mudar não sei, a mentalidade do ministério. O ministério é o poder. Mas eu não dizia uma coisa Should we start? Okay. So, yeah. we continue after the break? Yes. The floor is yours. Yes. So, you need more water? Okay, sure. So, okay. Um, so for the people, we will be interested in our things, our yeah. specific things. Yes. So uh, it took much longer than we uh, expected, but I was told that we have this floor uh, until maybe 5.30 or even 6. So uh, the thing is that for the people high over there, uh, we will continue uh, for at least an hour. And in the beginning of the hour, I will start talking about one particular case uh, that the GovZero, it's actually the Zero's project of GovZero, is budget.govzero.tw. And uh, the, the magic about this project was that it was the, the um, initial thing that promoted the creation of this domain. And uh, uh, it started with a television um, advertisement. The, 
Taiwan government has uh, at that time what they call a economic boost up plan. It's like one of those five year plans. And uh, the, the plan is very complicated. So to spend a budget wisely, they reallocated all the different ways to spend public money on a national level. Now they uh, filmed a movie, a, a advertisement, just five minutes short movie that they broadcast on YouTube. It was the first YouTube account movie that they published to the netizens in addition to television networks. And that uh, advertisement, which I will spare you, is basically showing the, yeah, the economic power-up plan on top. And then five people looking very puzzled uh, to this banner. And then the, uh, the, oh, the, the uh, voiceover says, the economic power-up plan is a very complicated plan. We would like to explain in five minutes, but it is not possible. So we will just tell you that we have everything figured out. And in the five minutes time, I would ask you to, you know, not question the, the government's decisions and just go on with it. Because to do economy, we don't need more debates. We just need actions to go ahead and do it. So trust us. Yes, yes, trust us. And don't criticize. It is a very complicated plan. And you must trust us, and we don't trust you to understand. So, so, so this is so insulting. Uh, that the, the director of that advertisement was replaced promptly. But, but uh, also that sufficient people uh, use this YouTube feature called Report as Spam on that uh, YouTube advertisement so that uh, the Taiwan government become the first government to be marked as a junk mailer and to be removed the account from YouTube. And so, so people, people were just saying this is spam. And so, um, of course, all it takes is for a, a letter to YouTube to restore their account. But one of the, the founders of GovZero, um, CEO Gong, was at that time in the Yahoo hackathon. And they were doing a very commercial kind of hackathon where people present commercial ideas. So they were trying to do some e-shopping, you know, this kind of hackathon. But because of the YouTube account was restored on that day, they feel very much insulted. And so they changed their topic on the very last minute and decided to download all the PDF and Word files of the national budget saying, okay, you don't trust us to understand it because it's too complicated and cannot be explained in five minutes. But uh, maybe the problem is with the way you share your data. Maybe the problem is not with our uh, brain. Maybe the problem is with the way you show it with 500 pages of PDF files. So they took those 500 pages and made a website, budget.govzero.tw, that shows the same national budget, but in a way that could be explained at the end of a hackathon in five minutes as an existential proof that this could be understood in five minutes. And uh, so, uh, and they had to register a domain for it. So they registered this domain, and that was the beginning of Zero because they got some minor uh, award from that hackathon, and they used the money to buy very good food for uh, their fellow hackers. <laughs> so, so that was the, the creationness, so to speak, of Zero. Now, no food, no egg. Exactly, exactly. So, so now from the environmental agency, I will now take you to the, the, to the uh, budget site. So this is um, 
the Taipei City Government. The web the web uh, address is budget.taipei. So so if you if you type you know budget.taipei in your browser or something, uh, you will go to this website. And uh, this is a saying very prominently on the top saying, this is a fork from the GovZero uh, central government website. Right? It's right on the top. Uh, and it has any number of Facebook likes. So what this is doing is it's saying to you that uh, the education budget is the largest among all the city government budgets. However, it's getting cut by about 2% compared to the previous year because of the color. Everybody could see that, right? And then uh, the environmental... So the pink is the cuts? Yeah, the pinks are the cuts. Oh. Then the red are the severe cuts. And uh, the green are the increase, okay? Year by year. And then the one that was a uh, red circle around it are the maintenance costs, meaning that this has to happen every year. Okay, you cannot cut this. And uh, the, yes, any questions? Okay, and then the non-red ones are investment, meaning that it is subject to change year by year. And now, you could see that in a glance that, uh, for example, social housing, social security is getting uh, more and more, and so on. But if you want to uh, look at the entire budget, you can also do that. Okay, so and the ones that are getting increased flood. And there is organized by areas with cuts in the area. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, that that's what the color is saying. Yes, so you can see that you know the top one with the red circle. I have no idea what it is actually. Um, oh, it is the pension because it is. Um, the Taipei city is letting go of all their private chauffeurs for the city officials, you know, in a way to you know reduce cost or something, and all the benefits that the Taipei officials are having, and they're now just taking the metro like everybody else. But they need to pay the pension to those private drivers that were driving for them before. So anybody in a few seconds can see what this is doing. All right. And then in the United States, I don't know if you yeah. know, there is uh -huh. a thing called Death in Taxis, uh -huh. which has been done by a marketing agency. Uh -huh. There was a representation on, on the American budget, which is in the studio of each one of the member of parliament, because yeah. it's the only way. They did like an experiment, and now it's a, a three meters long poster that I have also, ah, told, okay. which is very... Uh, very interesting because it was an experiment of marketing, but it became the only way for the member of parliament to, to understand the budget. Exactly, exactly, to visualize. So it's... Uh, yes. So, um, and now, um, here, what we see is four buttons, meaning that you ask for more of this budget. You don't understand the uh, explanation, you want to cut it, or you want to delete it altogether. Now, whenever you, you uh, click that, you will be asked why. And uh, the, the interesting thing here is, uh, all this is in, in Chinese, obviously, but uh, I will go to maybe social security, labor, whatever, social, okay. Or, 
I think labor is is more more interesting. All right. You have to be logged in to do it. No, no, no. Uh, to to comment, of course. Yeah. Yes. And then, for example, in in labor, where they have a re-education and and whatever, uh, you see a a tree map, right? But you also see the very fine details. So you can see, you know, for the labor insurance, for the labor union, or or whatever. Uh, how how they exactly are spending the money, and this is what they send to the council. So this is exactly the same word as they send to the city council. And but with software, we can highlight the parts that gets increased or gets decreased, and the reason behind this. And so when um, people have a discussion of this, uh, sometimes we want people to uh, understand exactly how this is like. So, for example, when we switch to uh, the unit that is perhaps iPhone five, I don't know what why iPhone five is here, but it will it will tell us like how many iPhone fives is uh, this amount of money and so on. So when when people when yeah, calculate the iPhone five. Yeah, exactly. It, it, yeah, it's just we can calculate the funds, for example, here in Poland. <laughs> Yes, yes. You you can use very creative uh, kind of units, but, but yes, yes. Just uh, one yeah, sure, sure. Yes. But can you show, for example, what is the um, the amount of uh, repaying the debt in this budget? Uh, yeah, sure, sure, sure. So, so you, you for example, in Italy, we have big, big bubble that is yeah, it's here actually. You can yeah. calculate, for example, you can choose several things that you can use uh, to calculate. Do, can you choose here, or the iPhone five is the only option? No, no, the the, 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 the other ones are are in, are in Mandarin. So I, I will translate for you. Yeah. So these are in uh, in order yuan, which is just Taiwan dollars. And then this is uh, a lunch. How many lunch there is? The average national salary. How many minutes of space travel, uh, and uh, uh, how many business ma trips? Yeah, business trips. How many uh, uh, bubble teas? Uh, how many Icelands? And how many Icelands? How many Icelands? Yeah, I think they're they're using the total uh, Iceland bailing out money as the unit. I think when when Iceland went bankrupt. Ah, okay. Yeah. Uh, Iceland. Yeah. Iceland. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, as a Yes. Right. So. so there's no one from Iceland here. Because you could use Portuguese. How many Portuguese debt? Yes, and you can see like this how how many uh, relative uh, size and and things like that. So um, to 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 answer your question, the. Um, the the debt actually is here. It's in the other uh, other expenses, which is not that much actually, and also the pension, and also this is disaster preparation, and then this is uh, like um, temporary workers actually, which is not not so much. It is okay. Yeah. So so yeah, this gives. So the main issue is yeah. that it's a multi-level. Uh, readability, so yes. you can you can adapt to the culture of the reader, different mm -hmm. level of understanding. Exactly. So so if you are an expert, then you you debate on this level. But if you're just a, a you know lay person, 
you still have a, a basic idea of what the, the budget is, is about. In iPhones. In iPhones, yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly in iPhones. <laughs> and, and because each of this has a, a, a discussion board, so um, people could click on it and say, you know, I want more, I want less, and so on, and have a Facebook discussion on it. But after one month of, of, of people pressing like and saying whatever they like uh, or dislike about the budgets, uh, the city government surprised all of them by having all of the office reply to all of the comments directly. So, and this is amazing. I mean, uh, we, we use the, the, the focus conversation method to reply first to the fact questions. Uh, like, I see the stadium being invested, but I don't see a construction, what's going on. And uh, then the reflections, like this should be more, this should be less. And then ideas. Right, so people were were very surprised when the city government people uh, replied to them in this way. And but the reason why they do that is, as I said, the mayor was an independent. He doesn't have a party. The entire city council is his opposition. So 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 when he wants to do participatory budget by allocating five um, percent, some percent of the city investment budget, the council was against that because there is no party backing the mayor, right? And then, but then it was seen as a you know, attack on representative democracy from the direction of direct democracy. But the mayor then said, okay, we bypass the council. We, we now recruit people who can make sense out of this information, who made interesting or useful contributions. We send them invitations through their local communities for them to attend classes to educate for them about budgeting. And when they get 12 hours of education, they get a credit card. And uh, when they get 24 hours, they get additional training on how to talk with civic servants, you know, civic servant specialties. And, and then they may, if they enroll in this another 12 hours of training, they train to become facilitators to how to, you know, hold meetings, how to take records, how to, uh, you know, do cross-sectoral uh, stakeholder analysis, you know, very basic facilitator training. And they, they call it shen yuan, deliberators, city deliberators. And by the end of the 36-hour training, they get this uh, metro card that has their name on it, saying that this is the busy bee card. You are now a busy bee of the Taipei city that is like a civil servant, but from the civic society. So, so when they have completed training of maybe 300 people in three different batches of this kind of deliberators, they now have the same kind of counter expertise that could rival the uh, budget committee of the city council. Because now, now they see the same data and they have more or less the same level of uh, expertise and knowledge. And then Mayor Ke could start doing participatory budgeting. Because before that, he doesn't really have the buy-in from the city council, and so the city civil servants will be very uh, kind of scared because then maybe all the budgets get cut when the participatory budget process runs at the end. It still needs a stamp of approval right, from, the, from the city council. But now with this uh, threat or <laughs> carrot and a stick kind of thing of saying, uh, you will get bypassed if you don't buy in into this process, 
the mayor could now get much more buy-in from the city council, who sees now their role as the leaders of those、uh, civic deliberators. So now they are much more aligned in value. But this is because we have people who speak the civil servant language or the elected、uh, council member language through this kind of public education for at least half a year. So that's how Taipei does、uh, its PD plan. But it's based on the national、uh, budget work that Gazero did as its zeros、uh, project. I hope I'm making sense. So any. So he means that he, he strengthened his weak political position、mm-hmm. through a program that was、uh, matching transparency, a civic. Uh, uh, Training、mm-hmm. in order to create precondition to have、uh, a society that could support、uh, externally、mm-hmm. the lack of political support. Exactly. Yes. Yes. That's brilliant analysis. Exactly.、Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. So, but that was because you were there to help him with this. Exactly. Because if without、uh, your system, you、yeah. wouldn't have helped. Right. Because then the council will have to approve a budget to buy a system to replace them, which will never happen. <laughs> so, so the fact that we offer this system for free is, of course, critical. Because we are trying to imagine what kind of things Empatia can offer. That.、Uh, It's attractive because it's for free, but at the same time, obliged to a larger level of transparency and responsiveness、mm-hmm. by the institution than what that what is exist now.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we understood that also from your perspective, the fact of offering for free.、Um, Tempting things,、uh, although these tempting things included a, a, a responsibility, duty of transparency,、mm-hmm. they continue to be attractive.、Yes. So our our discussion is exactly on、uh, on how we can、uh, yes. we can get attention and and try to, to contribute. And, and and also when Taipei City did this. The Gaoshan City, the southern city,、uh, announced immediately that they will also publish their entire PDF in the open spending format to join this platform because they don't want to be seen as less administratively progressive than the Taipei City because they're fighting for the capital position actually. So all this、uh, budget platform、uh, relies on the publication of、uh, budget data in open data.、Yeah. From central and local authorities、exactly. uh, in all the island wide. Exactly.、Okay. Yes. Yes. I mean that's、uh, and when you started already, you had this source of open data, or、no. the the platform was also able to let's say activate、yes. because one problem, for example,、uh-huh. we met one of、uh, another project which is like. Clean or cozy project of Empatia, also founded by Duet. It's called Open Budget. Yes. And focuses exactly on providing、uh, like semantic blah 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 for analyzing、uh, public budget. The point is that it theoretically relies on the fact that、uh, it's based on a whistleblowing principle, so that citizens、uh, will、mm. provide this kind of data bottom up. Yeah. Which somehow. It's a mechanism that can、uh, be enacted just when there is a certain kind of、uh, critical mass.、Mm-hmm. I would say that、uh, push other to imitate to、mm-hmm. something that exists. But I'm not sure that how, how does it start? How did it start?、Yes. What was the the, the、right. origin of,、uh, yes. of that? Yes. Yes. So.、Um, 
um, I'm reminded that I should not write acronyms, so mm -hmm. I was I will write Freedom yeah, yeah, of okay. Information uh -huh. Act. Yes. So um, I think most countries have something like that, where you can ask your government things and they must publicize it. The problem is this uh, act is read-only. The public in most uh, civil law tradition countries meaning that if they give you an A4 paper or a PDF yeah. file that is scanned, the only thing you can do is to read it. You cannot sell it, you cannot change it, you cannot even put it on your website sometimes. You, all you can do is to read it, maybe aloud to other people, but that's the, the only thing you can do, right? <laughs> yes. And then, again, what they give is information, meaning it's understandable by people but not necessarily computers. So if they give a very low quality uh, scan, there's nothing you can do with it on computers without human, right? So the, the Freedom of Information Act is a start, but it's never strong enough. So in Taiwan, when we're pushing for open data, we make a very, very clear distinction, saying when you go from public read-only to open, read-write, <laughs> you enable people to make things like this. Because you can now change the way the data is presented. You can make tabular data into tree maps. But in the original Public Information Act, you cannot do that because it was not licensed using an open definition or a creative common license that enable remixes and creativities of this kind of thing. So we sell the idea of open data not through data policy, but through the openness that allow people to do the convincing, the translation, the visualization, everything, reporting, storytelling work for the government, for the civil servants. And for the civil servants, this is very attractive because that makes their, their position much more important than the elected officials because they are the provider of this information, which then gets converted for free to, to reach more people, right? So, so this is the, the first thing. Now, the next thing, as you said, sometimes with whistleblowers or with, with Freedom of Information Act, all we get is low quality information, uh, but we want to turn it into a machine. Maybe, maybe you, you have yeah. this certain spot, specific area of good information See, that you cannot yes. cover. Uh, exactly, exactly. So it's not, it's not machine readable. If it's not machine readable in its entirety uh, with context, it's not really data, right? You can call it raw data, but, but this is very stretching it, right? So to, to make information into something that is also machine-readable, we rely on the international community, like the open spending community, the, the OKFN, the you know, data package, uh, uh, the all, you know, the usual suspects, to, to define the, the international formats that we say you know, if you convert your information to this uh, data definition that's being maintained by 27 countries, which is true, uh, you automatically get visibility to 27 countries. And because Taiwan is not part of United Nations, it's not part of WIPO, all the elected officials are very interested in getting Taiwan visibility anywhere in the world. 
So because it was like a hide, hidden country on the on the uh, OKFN where we were uh, the the first place, they had to change this column. This used to say country, but now this say place, right? So so because of that, uh, the Taiwan now in the United Nations, uh, they had to to change from a kind of multilateralism way of thinking of sovereignty into multi-stakeholderism, where Taiwan is twenty three million people of a civil society, or some 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 other things like that. But the the idea is that elected officials buy into this because when they publish information in a way that is also compatible with international data, then they get international visibility, like the top space on the OKFN index, which is very good right, for public elected officials. So this way we convince the public servants unelected. This way we convince the elected officials. And so together we change the Taiwan's norm from the public information to open data, so that now any information system that costs less than 1 million euros are open data creative commons by default. They cannot even argue. They cannot even refuse. As long as this is built in under a million uh, euros of total budget over the past three years, they must be open data in a machine-readable format under a creative commons compatible license. So, so this completely changes the role of civil servants. So, and I will explain how we get to there in the next slide. Right. So, is that okay? So, as I said, all the technologies we worked that I showed so far is from the government to the civil society and asking for the feedback, right? But the civil society is not satisfied with that. What, what we really want is agenda-setting power. It's saying what kind of things must the government think about and this is um, because the civil society, although it has solidarity, linking, whatever, is never getting the same amount of early stage decision data as the private sector lobbyists are getting within the government. Now, maybe individual academicians, uh, scholars, committee members have some representation in those committees like the environmental or budget or development committees. But the problem is that they, they don't have this natural, uh, what we call the industry chain connection that the lobbyists have. Because a lobbyist in one industry naturally has affinity with their vendors and their customers' uh, industry. So their naturally interests are aligned. But our individual committee members are, don't, don't have this kind of natural uh, uh, chain. And the reason of um, this is because when they can share a lot of information within the lobbyist network, there is no comparable network for the civil society to share those early stage decision-making information. And as a result of that, the protesters on the street, uh, even though they could mobilize a lot of people, they're not really speaking the same language as the lawmakers are, are, are speaking. So they could escalate however they want, but it's not the same kind of process. And this is a, a general enough graph. I think this applies to pretty much any democratic country uh, on the planet. And one of the, the way we, we turn this around is by Occupy. Now, I, I imagine all of you know how Occupy works, so I will not explain uh, the Occupy or the hand gestures, right? But, uh, 
the, the place where we occupy is the legislative parliament, the Congress. Uh, and uh, the why we occupy it was that it refused to do its job. Now, uh, the background, which could be very easily explained in one minute, is this. In 2014, Taiwan is about to sign a cross-strait trade agreement deal with Beijing. And when Beijing-China uh, agree on this much better than the World Trade Organization term, they offered a cross-strait very, very good deals about the service uh, agreement, basically giving a semi-domestic monopoly, sort of speak, to Taiwan-based companies. Now, normally, when we sign something like that with, say, New Zealand, or with Japan, or with Portugal, uh, there is a process. The parliament must hold a hearing, right? All the impacted industries must send representatives, and then they, they debate uh, case by case, and then they do an impact analysis. You know, this is the same in any other democratic country. But because constitutionally, Beijing is part of Taiwan, in the Taiwan Constitution, uh, because of a loophole in the Constitution, because of the government that uh, occupies Taiwan was the government of China. So constitutionally, they consider Beijing part of Taiwan, Mongol, Mongolia part of Taiwan, Tibet part of Taiwan. <laughs> and so any agreement that we sign with Beijing is like the national government signing a deal with the Taipei city. This is a domestic agreement. And a domestic agreement is an administrative business that is nothing of the parliament's business, right? Because that's how things work. If all the Taipei city or Taichung city uh, budget must go through the national parliament, the parliament doesn't have to do anything else, right? This is too much for them. So because Beijing is a local government in a Taiwan institution, uh, this kind of trade agreement is when the president and the administration want to sign it, the deal doesn't have to go through the legislative. And the legislative, when they sit on it for 90 days, it automatically gets passed. So, so there's no way to not sign the service agreement. And so clearly, this is against the intuition of everybody in Taiwan. But this is part of the constitution, and the constitution defines the function of the parliament. So the parliament cannot really function other than saying, okay, we cannot talk about it, we cannot deliberate about it. So by the day that is an automatic expiry, that is automatically goes into effect, there was this large protest outside the parliament building where I was supplying the internet connectivity for broadcasting. And this is what we call the Zero Sunflower Digital Camp because this is the first time as a demonstration it was not done like on the street. It was done in the parliament building. And the protesters was not uh, doing the usual kind of mobilization where they were just doing counter power. They were demonstrating in the demo kind of way. How should we talk about service agreement like this? So they were doing legislators' job in the legislative building uh, for 22 days. That was the idea of the, the Occupy. Now, uh, a few months after the Occupy, something very similar uh, happened uh, in Hong Kong. It's called the Umbrella uh, Revolutionary Movement, right? And again, it's self-organized. 
it was again just like in Taipei, uh, caught by the world media as the world politest protesters, uh, which do garbage recycling by themselves. And then I was in Dusseldorf, Germany at that time, and I was joining with telepresence, typing the message which was projected on the Occupy Central was in Hong Kong. I now, was in Hong Kong in those days. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yes. So, so you saw those projectors, and, and yes. So, and then um, one of the, the people there tweeted saying, the, the website of the Occupy Central has got to be most technological advanced in history. And now one of his friends said, I have seen this website before. And then CEO got one of the Gov Zero founders saying, yeah, because that's the Sunflower Movement website on GitHub. They just forked the, the, the um, Gov Zero Sunflower Movement website. So for people who have not seen the website before, this is uh, crowdsourced bookmarks here. Everything is crowdsourced. You can add a bookmark here. And this is all the live uh, video feeds that is seen here. And this is the, the real-time uh, map, so to speak. And then this is news and rumors, and this is logistics. Uh, and in finer detail, the uh, highlights shows you uh, the you know, medical areas, the barricades, the concentration of police, uh, a war map, basically, uh, that anybody who play video games knows how to use. And then, uh, this is to tell rumors from facts. So any rumors get triaged uh, by on the field uh, photo, and it's done in a timeline map. This is also a, a time mapper and again, a, a Gov Zero export, so to speak, uh, that correlates those rumors and news to the place where they happened, okay? And then, uh, this is the, all the cameras uh, that people brought, and in real-time video casting, you can view four of it or nine of it at a time, and then and you can just correlate those news with this real-time uh, transcripting service that people do next to the videos. And when I was in Germany, I can see that now uh, there is maybe 12 different places Occupy. And for every Occupy, this is the last update date, uh, they say that they need water, pottery, sweat, drinks, ponchos, towels. And we see that these places are being gas attacked, so they need N95 masks uh, and, and things like that. So, so any uh, new supplies, they know where to, to flow and then this says uh, urgent releases and what kind of uh, extra supplies they have, so they can also repurpose the supply to their uh, nearby occupied areas and so on. So this is a, a very useful application, obviously, but this is what Clay calls a situational application, a sit app. Because if you use only Twitter, only Facebook, only Google+, you, you cannot do movements this way. This way of doing movements requires the hackers go for Hong Kong in this case, being on the field, changing the software every day, responding to the need of the Occupy of that day, and deploying it in the matter of minutes to, to everybody on the occupied areas. So without hackers at the front line of a Occupy, this kind of applications could never happen because Facebook and Twitter, as great as they are, they were not designed for Occupy. So, uh, and the Zero's prototype of it happened uh, okay, I still have some time. So, <laughs> happens in the anti-nuclear force plant protest. Uh, this is a year before this, in uh, 2013. 
there were a, a very large, almost quarter million uh, protests uh, because that was after the, the Fukushima uh, nuclear plant event in Japan. So everybody was very against nuclear power at that point, right? So and Taiwan was doing uh, its first nuclear plant and people went on the street to say, well, we don't want that. Now, when people were on the street, the news media came and then they found that all the cell phones were, were, were down because they could not report on the field because the 3G network just got overloaded with that many people on the street. And so none of the real-time media people could send out their footage. And even though there's very many people, you can only look at those um, next day's newspaper, which decrease the, the bargaining power of the, the movement. So this year, uh, that year in 2014, they don't want to repeat the same mistake. So they searched uh, for experts, that is to say, got zero people. And I'm not a CPR expert, but I know something uh, about uh, software. So we, we uh, worked with the cable power radio experts in the got zero team to a hackathon that we call the, the you know, parade hackathon. Uh, and the parade hackathon takes place outdoors. And then we, we issued for a 50 megabits, 50 megabits line. Uh, to a nearby building and then uh, uh, we want to broadcast. We expect a quarter million people come and we will give all the journalists real-time footage. They could stream everything and we have everything planned out. Now, but on that day, a typhoon came and, uh, and it was raining cats and dogs. And so not, not even quarter million people, there's maybe 50,000 people or even less. So, so it became a very small kind of show, right? And so people were, were raining at home and it was raining so hard. So, so we have a, a very high-speed fiber optic line, but we don't know what to do with it because people could just use their 3G network. There's not, not, not many people. So, but then YouTube just opened its YouTube live platform a few weeks before that. So we have extra bandwidth. And we have a SDI, uh, sorry, a high-definition uh, video connection from the stage where the shows and the protests and the speakers and the band were playing, right? So we just repurposed that line, connecting to my computer. We use a Thunderport, uh, Thunderbolt port and broadcasted it through YouTube online. It was not announced because we, we did not expect we have bandwidth to do that. But now we have all the extra bandwidth. So we do live broadcasting. Now people feel guilty for not showing up on that day because of the weather. So they spread the news very quickly soon as we posted a link to the YouTube broadcasting. So in a matter of minutes, there are more people watching than people are around the stage. And because we're just you know broadcasting the camera, uh, the, the people watching don't really know that it's just a few people there. It looks like still a very large festival and event and whatever. So, so people feel like they're they in a, a virtual parade, so to speak, uh, that still has some kind of uh, influence. So, so we um, worked on the protocol of how to do this kind of live broadcasting on that day. And just 10 days after that, the Occupy Parliament happened. So we set up the same kind of gears here, and we expect it demonstrate for a night and people will go home. But one of the young students who lent me his laptop, saying this is my administrator password, this is a, a laptop of 17 or 16 inch, a large laptop, and he says, okay, you can use it as your broadcasting station, and I'm not going to use my laptop anymore. 
I'm like this university student. He's not going to use his laptop, huh? <laughs> but the, it turns out that he went to the other side of the parliament building and broke through the window and occupied the parliament. Uh, so we, we learned that day. Uh, all the occupiers, there were maybe 50 or so students, they are only allowed to carry MacBook Air. Uh, anything that is heavier than MacBook Air, they cannot climb over the walls with it, so they have to leave it down the street. So <laughs> it makes sense, right? So, and iPad, of course. So uh, when they were uh, in the parliament building, nobody was expecting it. So there were just a few police. So there was very civilized, right? Uh, they don't even have to fight with police, there were no police. So uh, then the, the video team uh, supported uh, this uh, Gov Zero live video, happened to have this very uh, high quality video camera with this long stick and so on. So they covered the entire process of breaking into the, the, the parliament building. And once they are in the parliament building, they set up this, this so-called sandals uh, broadcasting station, which has been broadcasting whatever happens on the Occupy area uh, for the next 20 or so days. So we have three video sources at that night. And the police soon came and surrounded this place. But because we already have people watching the live video, people went to take buses, take taxis to, to support, and they counter-surrounded the police. And with like 10 to 1 ratio. So the police dare not move. And uh, the, the people would just counter surrounding the police. So the new police cannot uh, join the, the people. So, so it became a very interesting uh, situation where new people also cannot join the inner occupiers. But they were very interested in participating. So when, when they do... Uh, listen to our to YouTube uh, views or the students' uh, Ustream views, we ask people to type whatever they hear into this hackpad system that uh, government uh, GovZero uses all the time. So this is like Google Doc. And uh, we brought that hackpad immediately. And they, they brought, uh, bought a new cluster, I think, in, in EC2 or something, specifically for GovZero, because otherwise their other paying customers couldn't use their service. So uh, then we used this to correlate the transcripts with the translations, which was at the time 12 different languages. So this is basically a media apparatus that is like any other media, but it was built by civil hackers over the first 24 hours. Now, this is important because the news cycle, we occupied <clears throat> on the night, and on the next morning, all the printed papers say, these are mobsters, they were drunk people, they were breaking things, you know, what mainstream media do, right? But the agenda setting power is done by the civic media already before the morning paper were printed. People see on YouTube with their own hand how the breaking in happened, how there were peaceful negotiations with police and so on. So by the time the morning paper printed, we, people knew these were lies, like there were no fights and, and so on, right? So then it became, uh, so we set up a hack folder that was the prototype of the Hong Kong system that you just saw. And then the same designer who designed the Cup Zero logo designed the main you know, visual identity. And then we crowdsourced all the bookmarks. So for the next few days, it becomes a, a war between traditional media and civic media. And uh, it's a war on agenda setting, on the virality, on everything. And so, um, and we, we easily won that war in, uh, in three days. 
because the agenda setting power, when you see with your own eyes, the transcripts are accurate and the transcripts are translated and, and broadcast overseas, this is the reach that the, the traditional media just don't have. Now, on the third day, we, we run into something that uh, all the occupiers, uh, when they are more than a week or so, run into. It's the spreading of rumors. Because when there are uh, more than one site, for example, here, we see uh, people rumoring that the people in the parliament are being attacked by the police. So they want to escalate the fight with the police, for example. And the leader has to come out and say, no, this is not actually the case. Because while people could fact check, checking their phones, the rumors do spread faster than the time it would take to check their phones. Okay? So what we did was that we brought our own projector and we set up this temporary projecting screen and we work with the stenographer in the parliament building. She types everything she hears in the parliament building, which is then broadcasted to the outside wall on the wall of the parliament building. And I brought uh, to the ICT experts this very long uh, C86 line that is 350 meters long. And they deployed this as an intranet to all the three different sites of occupation. So it becomes a land party, so to speak. Uh, so that we have sub 10 millisecond uh, view of everything that happens in the parliament. And people who don't have the time to check the screen can see the stenographic transcript and say that is correct. So it's as if the police that is between the occupy area and the streets don't exist. It's as if we can see straight into the parliament building. And so rumors spread now slower than facts. Now, because it's such a good idea, the people in the parliament building soon set up their own projectors that shows the projection on the streets. So, so it became really just one room of a lot of, a lot of people. Now, we, we provide this uh, as a neutral role because during the Occupy, aside from the uh, students and the protesters, there's a lot of other protesters on the street uh, representing, roughly speaking, the separatists from China, independence, uh, and the environmentalists who protest against the agreement's uh, ecological impact, and the leftists who protects uh, against the, you know, the, the laying off or the, the you know, trade uh, agreement that will cause the loss of jobs or the loss of life quality of labor people. And these three kinds of people are considered also protesters. But the other three kinds of people were considered neutral roles. They are doctors who upheld the uh, you know, right of health, so they will uh, you know, uh, treat police or protester or anything, and lawyers protecting the right of due process. And now the Gov Zero people use the Gov Zero sticker on their shoulder. We call ourselves uh, the upholding the constitutional right of communication. So we're, we're the communication experts. So anybody who has anything to say, we're there to support their right to say anything on the internet. So, and this is important because it only with this kind of neutrality, people could trust us that we're actually representing people inside and outside of the war in a you know neutral fashion. And this uh, come to test just two days after we uh, declare ourselves neutral. Um, on the twenty fourth, a bunch of students decides from the occupied parliament building and the streets, three streets near it, to attack also the administrative building. That was just like street. And this is <coughs> very dangerous because the administrative <coughs> building is the executive power. 
right? So the police went and uh, tried to evacuate the people who went there. And at the same time as the action, which was unpre-announced, we got cyber attack through our crowdsourced uh, bookmarks and our crowdsourced transcripts. It's like a coordinated attack on the infrastructure of communication. Now, because we use only free tools, because it's open source, because it costs nothing, it took us only one hour to recover on another platform. Right, we just changed the C name and for the DNS to propagate. That's the only time we need to wait. But on the same time, we sent people uh, with a WiMAX, um, that is to say a, a high-speed connection, and as many battery packs as we can muster, and an iPad to cover the, uh, as a real-time real stream the attack on the administrative building from the occupiers. Now, the police who went here and then the, the students who went here behave very peacefully because they know they were being watched by 60,000 people online. There is a counter on Ustream. So, uh, so they broke the glasses, maybe. There was some shouting or something, but they, they, they behaved very civilly. But on the other side of the administrative building, there was police brutality of some degree. So it was very, very brutal. And that's because there's no camera filming them. So uh, on that night, we learned that people behave differently <laughs> under camera <laughs> versus not under camera. Uh, of course, we all know that, but we learned it very painfully. So uh, we decided then, um, okay, I still have time, um, to deploy not only the stationary cameras, which by that time is number is in the dozens, but they were stationary we decide that we need mobile cameras in everywhere around, not just the streets, but anywhere with any kind of possibility of escalation. So we build a website. This is a civic journalism batch generator. So all, all you have to do is to write your name here and upload your photo here, and it will print you a batch uh, of your desired size that will fit your phone or your the iPad that declare that you're a journalist. And then, uh, and then we print on the other side of the badge, or the uh, flip side of the badge, this QR code. And what is this QR code? It's a link to a Supreme Court ruling a few years ago that says, the Article 11 of the Constitution protects not only speech, but also news gathering. And news gathering is not limited just to professional journalists but also protects any ordinary person who gather information with the aim of providing newsworthy information to supervise the government. So whenever the police stop a civic journalist, we ask them to scan the QR code and read the Supreme Court decision that says any area where the mainstream media can enter, the civic journalist who print this badge must be uh, able to allow to enter. Otherwise, we would take you all the way to the Supreme Court. So, um, and, and they, they assented because this decision was done in a unambiguous way. Everybody voted for it, the, all the you know, uh, justices. So th the thing is that with this kind of uh, civic journalism badge, suddenly we have dozens of mobile news feeds on the ground. And after that day, there is no injury, no fighting, nobody missing. It became a totally nonviolent protesting. Now, when people become nonviolent, we can actually do some deliberation. So, uh, beginning at March uh, 2029, 
we went public this uh, eight months old project from Gap Zero called uh, Are You Affected by the Cross-Strait Agreement? And this is a website where you can be with your mobile phone and you can enter the trade you're in. Maybe you're in the IT industry or you can enter your company name. And then you will show cross-linking to the company registration database, the five trades your company is working on. And then clicking on the kind of work that you do, it will show in a three-panel comic how exactly does the CSSTA affect you. It will show you a mainland Chinese coming by person or just the money, whether you can also do it uh, to some province or the entire mainland China, and how many uh, impact will it have on your neighboring industries. Or if you are actually not in the service industry, it will show you that you are not affected by the CSSTA. So instead of reading through hundreds of pages of PDF files, which was the raw material we were working with, uh, we correlated it with registration data, with the UN data, with the WTO data, and with the mainland Chinese laws to show everybody in five seconds how exactly do they affect them. And to show the support of the occupiers on the street, because on that day, when we started the deliberation in place of legislators, the president said, we, we do not acknowledge the result of this deliberation. We do not think, even though you can convince thousands of students, they are representative in any way. So half a million people showed up on the street of Taipei and says, this is uh, not right. We, we must deliberate and uh, the administration, the legislation must uh, accept the result. So then what, what do we do with half a million people on the street? Uh, we, we group them, again, according to existing streets into the independentists, uh, separatist-led uh, deliberation, which talk about the sovereignty or the relationship with China of the trade agreement. And then the ecological, the green people talk about uh, the ecological, the land, the farmland, whatever impact. And then the uh, leftist people talk about the labor rights and, and so on. And our own ICT people started using Lumia, which is a uh, specifically designed for the Occupy kind of situation application where people could share in their local area network how to reach consensus. So one of our topics here is how, to, how do we tell ICT volunteers from people who are just here to use this neutral fast lane to get a very good view of the parliament? Uh, because GovZero people, because our logo is Creative Commons Zero, anybody can print it and put it on a badge and says that we are a radio power technology expert, so we're neutral, so please get us in. But what they really want to do is just to you know, check in on Facebook. So basically, uh, we need to tell the ICT people from the non-ICT people. So there were a lot of proposals uh, being proposed on Lumio, starting from very stupid ideas, like we could ask for their ID card or something like that, or credentials or something. Uh, we would ask them to make a GitHub commit to prove that, uh, something like that. But uh, none of these are very practical in this kind of on-the-field setting. But the beauty of Lumio is that we can have multiple stage of straw polls. And whenever a new idea comes, we can do another strange of poll until everybody agree converge on the consensus. So our final consensus was that 
whenever a new person shows up with the Gov0 badge saying they're of the ICT team, we ask them what is 2 to a power of 16. And if they can answer this mathematical question, what's 2 to the power of 16, they're probably a geek. Uh, and if they're not, they're probably not really the ICT team. Right, so 2 to the power of 16. And that, that was the, the consensus. It was really effective. So using the same technology, we captured uh, the deliberation that was happening on the street uh, in a different part of CSSTA, and that was our first encounter with the people doing deliberative democracy or participatory democracy and uh, to lend ICT support to, to their cause. So that is how we met those people, and that's how GovZero as a whole sort of just gained a whole new dimension that we want to set a mediation space where everybody could trust us and for the private sector to sit down with the civil sector about the things that the government's not having the entire agenda setting power. I think it's time for another 10 minute break. So are, are people okay with this story? Any ideas, thoughts, comments? I actually have a question. Yes. Um, I was thinking about the, the participative budget mm -hmm. in the website. I'm from Turkey, so it's not really a comparison between how many millions of people we have in Istanbul and in Taipei. Yeah. But still, I was thinking about the other question that you really need to have a critical mass to be able to affect the politicians. And my question is that how many people follow this website? Or how? Yeah. Right. Is, so, it, is it really active in, in the society at yes. large? Uh, yes, so uh, you mean the, the PB website, yeah. uh, the budget in, in Taipei? Right? Any, any other GovZero Gov yeah. website, yes. So we have half a million people on the street, right? So they show up. But it's easily 10 times this number online. Mm -hmm. But this is because everybody is concerned about the CSSTA. Now, the Taipei budget, I think, I don't have the, the, the uh, numbers, but in the ballpark, the day when the mayor, he says something very interesting. He said, um, without this kind of educational tool, NEPB is just populism. And which is kind of true, right? Because then people are voting without knowing what they are voting for. And, and this gets quoted. And so, and on the national media. So, so on, the, on the first day, we, we get, uh, I think, uh, almost a quarter million. Uh, people who, who joined uh, this, this kind of new cycle, who, who went kind of very viral uh, because, okay. Uh, Someone who wants to not make transparent. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. Uh, so, yeah, but I, I cannot speak in Morse code, so uh, we need an interpreter. So, in any case, um, the, but, but to answer your question directly, um, the, the number of people who who care about Mayor Ke, the Taipei City Mayor, is a, a lot nationally because there is a tradition in Taiwan for the mayor of the capital to become the next president. So, okay, so, and then Mayor Ke was unique because he, he had never done politics before, he was a professional surgeon. So, and he was generally seen not a leftist. He was generally seen as somebody who thinks Singapore is a really good idea, like modern, efficient, you know, something a surgeon would, would like, clean, and things like that. But uh, 
with this Gap Zero partnership of participatory budgeting. This is something very, very uh, important because he uh, kind of contracted it himself just a week ago. And, and that's another thing he, he likes to do. He would say something, and then a week after that, or even the day after that, he would say, uh, I was wrong yesterday. Sorry. Um, now, he admits publicly he, has, uh, uh, he is on the autism spectrum as an Asperger's person. So it's very natural for him to, to just speak the facts. Um, and, and his child was diagnosed as an autist. So, so he has this special uh, quality of not feeling any shame or losing face of saying, okay, I was wrong. Now I think this way, which is great for, for direct democracy. <laughs> so, and then uh, what, what he, he said essentially was this, that so uh, we have democracy, it's very young in Taiwan, but we can either roll back and go back to the authoritarian Singapore model, or we can go forward. We, we, can, we can bring it to the 21st century and do something that nobody in Asia has done. And then for participatory budgeting, he buys into this idea exactly because nobody else in the Asia is doing PB this way, as, as the type of city is doing it, based on open data and direct participation, bypassing the council entirely, having a, a counter expertise to the council, and, and things like building his own council, basically, and, and things like that. So, so he, he sees it as a democratic innovation. And when a potential future presidential candidate says that, it gets national attention very quickly. So, so I think everybody in Taiwan knows about this, but people check in this website only maybe people living in the north region of Taiwan, which is slightly fewer, but it's still a, a larger n a number of people. Yeah. Yes. One, one more comment. There was something yeah. that you said before that was like, uh, like I was thinking about this. Which is this idea that, I mean, uh, you were saying, uh, well, we were able to put cameras uh, on certain side uh, uh -huh. of, uh, so yes. the level of violence decreased automatically yeah. once uh, transparency yeah. was projected yes. in, uh, in the yes. public space. Yes. Well, public space became transparent, so... And that's something uh, that I was I was thinking about because uh, I don't know I was seeing for example now Turkey last year they had a lot of public demonstration a lot of cameras on the street uh, still level of violence on the people that was protesting was really strong and really high so I'm wondering uh, in what measure the way I mean I think the way in which you frame transparency and attribute a set of political value entrenched in the concept of transparency is not completely neutral with respect to the effect that transparency has on the society mm. where you implement it. Yeah. So for, uh, and I think, yes. it, I don't know if I, I have agree. been clear uh, on, uh, on this point. Uh, so just a very quick, yes. So, so there's two, two levels, right? There's, there's transparency. And there is re uh, reflexivity or reflectivity. Because the important thing is not the camera, it's the projector. It's the thing that people donated two-story high projectors installed on the street. And everybody sees everything that is taken by the on-field camera in real time as if they're telepresent in the same space. The important thing is not the nation sees the street. The important thing is the street sees itself through a mirror knowing that the nation is seeing it. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. yeah. yeah so, so basically this is a Truman's show, um, so to speak, that we, we make the space itself a, a, a space of mirrors. 
a reflective space. Without this kind of setting, with just cameras, people are not being made aware that they are inside a panopticon. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yes. Uh, we, we we have a, a entire uh, social computing theory about this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I understand yeah. Still, uh, I think uh, even if you're for could be used. Uh, I mean, it always depends by the power relation where you set it down. I was thinking, for example, the rally of uh, Donald Trump uh, the other day. They were clearly known that there were cameras on the position. They used this uh, situation to throw black people away from public space uh, where the Donald Trump was speaking. Mm. So it was a clear political message to the people that mm. was attending mm. and to the people at home mm -hmm. also. Yes. Yes, I, I have more slides that talk about that. Oh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. Uh, all right, uh, but but yes, I agree with this analysis. This this is completely true, um, and which is which, which is I'm not saying that you assess that transparency is a neutral value. It's just a yeah, exactly, exactly. And and which is why this is not enough. The setting is not enough because if the the private sector interests are much larger than what I draw here, then the civil society this becomes a, a method of exclusion. Right, because this becomes what the political analysis, a tokenism. Right, you you are here, everybody can be here, but it doesn't really matter because you know you're still a minority. So uh, we we evolved this this uh, idea. This in my next slide. Okay. Um, okay. So any other thoughts, ideas, questions, comments, tweets? We have some people. Uh, we have some people at home. Uh, that's um, that's they, they're not asking questions for them. Yeah. You can ask them. Yeah. If if someone at home wants to ask questions, you can. You can do so. Yeah. Can do it. One, one of the relay people will. Yes, relay for you. Right. So uh, now evolving this idea. Um, so after the, the Occupy, um, the politics in Taiwan changed completely. Uh, after the Occupy and the Occupy Central, there was this re-election of the city-level government. The Nationalist Party, which was the you know, dictatorship party, morphed slightly into the Democratic Party, um, lost completely in that election. And uh, I'm glad to say that all the legislator voting guides and everything that I mentioned maybe play a part in, in this. So a lot of mayors uh, from the Progressive Party and the Independents were surprised they were elected because their, their numbers went like 10% more than they predicted because a lot of the nationalist supporters just refused to vote. So uh, after that landslide victory uh, of the counterpower, the cabinet, the ruling cabinet, the prime minister resigned immediately. And then a new prime minister uh, came, still working for the Nationalist Party, but knowing that he only has one year until the election cycle that changed the president and the entire administration and legislation at the national level. So when he was tasked with directing the country's agenda when he only has one year left, and he has essentially two bosses, Right, the the president that's that's going down with approval rate of nine percent, and and the, the president that's coming up, but uh, controls all the cities, but not the national uh, parliament or national administration. The new prime minister is in a very difficult position, and uh, 
but he's an engineer. And uh, the the day he went on office, he was quoted saying, "A engineer has no right to to say no to a technical problem," which is a very good mentality, which I completely agree with. So, so, so he then set a, a completely new agenda for the next year that will not uh, alienate any of his two bosses. Uh, and the three agenda are open data, crowdsourcing, and big data. Uh, because they are infrastructure. All, all these three things are infrastructure. No politically elected official could be against that. Plus, it is the same agenda the Gap Zero people has already been advocating about, so they know they have natural allies. Now, he appointed the vice prime minister, a Simon Zhang, an ex-Google engineer, so he knows something about open data. And then Simon Zhang recruited Jacqueline Tsai, a uh, legal expert, an ex-judge, who worked for the IBM's legal, IBM Asia head of legal department for a few years. So again, she knows something about the ICT industry and the legal uh, things about it. So it becomes, for the first time in Taiwan's history, a cabinet led by engineers, and um, or technocrats, if you're against them. <laughs> so, and then they, they identify for the next year the topics they want to talk about that is neutral to any of the left or right or whatever. It has to happen, right? So they uh, started with the open data definition, and then an equity-based crowdfunding and closely held LLCs, and then taxation, privacy, de-identification, security, telework, telemedicine. Again, none of this is partisan. This, whatever ideology you have, this is uh, the bridge between the civil servants and the, the rest of the internet. So that becomes the new agenda of the year. Now, the first thing they want to do is to talk with people doing this kind of mobilization on the internet and saying, Okay, now we finally want to treat you as a, a peer, right? As so, like face to face. How do we use the social media tools for rulemaking? Because we know that you can mobilize any number of people, and we cannot. So, uh, how about we start talking about those kind of things? But the problem is that a government-initiated deliberation is completely different from an occupier-initiated deliberation. The occupiers knows that the people on the street are interested in the topic, otherwise they won't show up. But the government don't really know who the stakeholders are. The stakeholders don't know who, what the government is deliberating about. If they set up a website, people don't know how to actually comment effectively, even they have all the open data and things like that. They're often trolls, they're often partisan attack and hominins. But even if you have a really good moderator, People were still faced with information overload because there's a lot of three-letter acronyms in all of those, those legal code and things like that. It's like coding, right? And when you change one line, you change the entire system. But if you're not a legal expert, you don't know how the entire system will get changed. So it's a very difficult problem. Now, so they lost the, the election here. And then so a few days after that, um, they, they brought some Gulf Zero people and said, okay, we, we now want to start tele-e-deliberation the way you do in the Sunflower Movement. And then we select a, a, a topic that concerns all of you. It's called teleworking from a startup company that don't have a physical office address. So, uh, which is a good topic. I mean, this is a topic that obviously concerns everybody on the internet. And, uh, and they say, 
uh, the way administration do things is to hold a public hearing. And when they do a public hearing, they want representatives from the associations, from the guilds, and from the labor unions, right? That's how they do things. So they ask us, is there a union for all the teleworkers in Taiwan who could speak as a representatives for everybody who work at home? And this is ridiculous, because a, a, a programmer who work at home and a musician working at home, and a designer working at home, it's a completely different kind of trade. Nobody would dare to speak for other kind of people because we did the entire workflow, the, the labor and the, uh, the company relations is completely different. And nobody would stand and say, I represent all the teleworkers, right? And so they, they changed course. They say, okay, but how about the companies, early stage startups, who only have an email address and maybe they go on Kickstarter or some other you know, crowdfunding websites and register their company in Cayman Islands and then they'll have a physical address. Is there an association of such early stage startups and representatives? Of course there are not. They, they have problem paying their next month's salary. Why would they, they form an association? This is uh, ridiculous. So then they were faced with a problem because if they ask only the startup entrepreneurs and the teleworkers they know, everybody else will say this is lobbying, this is just closed deal with the people who are so close to administration and, and so on. And they were very afraid that they would get occupied again if they do that. It's always like a sword hanging over their head around that time in Taiwan. Like if they do the deliberation wrong, they would get occupied again. So uh, they, they need a, a different solution. They, they want to talk with people who already register at Cayman Island or work for company registered at Cayman Islands and find those people and ask what kind of laws of teleworking and of, you know, um, uh, startups, the company laws, we would take for you to register in Taiwan. Why are you registering in Cayman Islands and why are you working at home? And they want to reach everybody who would do that. So this is a engineering problem. So the, the, the fun thing is that Jacqueline uh, joined the hackathon as a civilian and so we call, call her Jacqueline, not minister. And then she took three minutes, just like everybody else, uh, showing this design saying we want to reach people in the registry in Cayman Islands. The phrase is the engineering problem. We need one editor, a few engineers, and so on. So the play it by Zero's rules. And then and, and we gather around the whiteboard using open space technology and work on the, the website that will uh, enable this kind of e-deliberation. So that was uh, at the end of December. So it took actually only a month uh, for us to, to build the system. And this was our first case, the, the company law change. And the way we did this was uh, modeled after IETF in the early uh, 90s uh, in the previous century. This is saying we held a mail list, a, a public forum, and everybody can join as long as you have an email address. And then we welcome discussions. But we're not saying anything about law. We're asking for stakeholders to identify themselves. Are you a startup lawyer or something and something? And then uh, any um, experience that you share is um, very much appreciated. And when people share something uh, useful or contribution, uh, they get marked as you know being valuable. And we invite those people to the administration building 
and hold <coughs> after the hours, so that we are not wearing suits or anything. But it's in the administration building uh, with the ministries of economy, of finance, and something, and with the leading scholars in civil law and case law, and uh, all the you know local government people working on a registration of companies to talk with those people. Anyone who contributed on the mailing list in a constructive fashion are invited to attend. And then it was done in the same technology as the Sunflower Movement. It was captured in real time, transcripts, broadcasted outside the walls, whatever, right? So the way this works is that we identify all the concerns everybody has, and then we ask people who make contributions to form a working group. And the working group is responsible to produce a document that's called a request for comment that is a request for commentary on the closely held companies. So it used the language of the IETF saying, if the Taiwan must make a law on the closely held companies like the Cayman Islands, uh, it must allow multiple votes per share, for example, and it must not uh, limit uh, the, the, the crowdfunding uh, venues. And it should, uh, for example, uh, allow a, a telecommuting kind of uh, um, stakeholder meeting, and then it should not, and may or may not, or something. This is the, the language of uh, the, the Internet Engineering Task Force. Now we, we produce this, and then we send it to the ministries to translate it to legalese, to, to legal code. And they agree, when they translate this, to cross-link back to this uh, suggestion. So that this is the first bill in Taiwan where every line was annotated with the, the demand or specification where it came from. They become our, our coder, right? And we are like project managers. Uh, they have to identify the specification implementation link. And again, the suggestions were then linked to specific points in the video feed when and where people brought this uh, topic up. So after this deliberation process, when the two parties are in the parliament filibustering each other, they couldn't pass anything at that time. And uh, the season ends in June the 3rd. This is the only bill where none of the parties want to block. Because first, all their parties have participated already in the working group. So unless they discover new facts that, that was not covered by the working group, they don't have any right to say we don't have consensus, we have consensus. And again, if they blocked this bill, they were against the entire startup community and all the teleworkers who paid attention, thousands of people who viewed this public consultation deliberation. So they, they dare not block this. It was passed in record time and signed into effect. And, and so now Taiwan has this kind of law. So to go into detail, because you're experts in this, we use the focus conversation method. We identify all the speech and uh, online mail list discourse. And we uh, separate it into the facts, the objective layer, the feeling of those objective facts, and the suggestions resulting of the feelings. And we use a font with six different weights of the font showing the strength of consensus. So just in a glance, you can see the overall strength of different options that uh, has the, the support. And we talk about one aspect of the standard uh, law, um, every slide using this pen and paper, technology, pen, well, screen technology, which is then broadcasted online. And people who participate online, we take 20 minutes to talk with face-to-face -face working group members, and then we shift 
to here and then see what people online have to say. We give them also 20 minutes to, to set the agenda for this particular slide, particular uh, topic. So they can express their, their consent, their worries, or their, their total uh, support with cat smileys, uh, and, and things like that. So, so there's a lot of nonverbal kind of communication going on uh, with this kind of, and we have a professional deliberator uh, online, uh, Yu Jianghua, who, who take care of the online part and carry it to the offline space. And I uh, was the facilitator on the offline space and was using this kind of technology to broadcast it to people who attend from the remote. So you don't have to be in Taipei City, and you're guaranteed the same amount of representation to working group meetings. So this is um, very effective. And when the whole country is seeing this, uh, either from recording or from mainstream media reporting, uh, it, there is no denying seeing that you know there really is consensus being formed in this deliberative process. So that is how we run uh, the working group meetings. And again, every word, every sentence was captured on the Say It platform, so you can do a link to one specific utterance within context, which the mainstream media people, uh, it saves them work. So they don't have to, to think of a very you know, con contentious uh, title or topic or something, they just copy and paste and, and make reports out of it. So the design principle of this system is this, to reduce the ignorance problem, all the ministries who propose things, like the Ministry of Labor, of Economy, they must first do a slide on SlideShare that explains the problem statement very clearly. And we have amateurs trying to read it and, and, and make sure. And then, for every keyword, startup, closely held up cooperation, telework, we ask for a 140-letter uh, definition. Because most of the online deliberation is wasted on fighting over the definition of keywords. And when we start defining lexicon the way the Moet Dictionary does, when you hover it, you see a definition, uh, it saves 80% of people's time because now we say, we know startup means different things to different people, but for the sake of deliberation, it means exactly this. Okay. And then when we do the initial stakeholder interview and agenda setting, we make sure that one representative from the elected official office, from Jacqueline's office, and one from the public servants, and one from the uh, Information Industry Association representing the private sector, and one from the Cathedral uh, civil society people, and at least four people, but sometimes five, six, or seven people. And so these people are the people who built this website. We set the term of use together, the license together, everything together. And so when, when we do interview of the stakeholders on agenda setting, we, we lend each other a kind of legitimacy that any uh, other kind of initiation would not have. Because everybody knows that all the agenda setting are being done in balance with each other uh, sector's ideas. And then we ask people's opinions. But we say, we're not asking you to vote. We don't do voting. What we are asking is an agenda for the face-to-face -face hearing. When we're running a public hearing on it, we promise we will only talk about the things that you proposed to us online where you reached a consensus on. So this completely changes the dynamic of the ICT, of the virtual part of the deliberation, because now it's responsible for the objective, that is the fact, and the reflective, that is the feeling, part of the deliberation process. We leave the, the idea, interpretational part, and the decisional part 
to the face-to-face -face meeting. But we use the, the uh, e-forums or whatever to collect as wide as possible. And when you bring a uh, useful contributory idea, then you are invited into the working group who do the idea and the decision. So this is a self-selecting process. And now, uh, this is a very geeky point, but I, I always uh, want to emphasize this. Um, it is a safe space, meaning that when people propose their responses online, sometimes you see 10 sentences, nine of which is very useful uh, disclosure or uh, useful contribution, but one sentence is a attack, right? Either to the agenda or to other people. Now, as a moderator, you face with a, a dilemma. If you censor this, if you kill this uh, comment, people will say that you're draconian or something, right? But if you keep this, the next reply is not going to reply to the civilized part. It's going to reply to this one sentence that's attacking people. And then you will get another reply that is 50% attack. And then the next reply is going to be 80% toxic. And the next reply is going to be a cat picture. And then <laughs> once you reach the, the point of cat picture, there is no return. <laughs> so so um, the, the, the challenge then is to how you uh, construct a safe space where you can have a discussion before the cat pictures arrive. So um, the, the way we do this is by editing the comments. When anybody sign on, we show a very clear term of use, code of conduct, and say upfront, your comments when it's an ad hominem attack, when it's toxic, it will be deleted. But we delete only that part of the sentence. We keep everything else. We, we delete maybe four words. And then we send a private message to that person saying, you're in violation of our term of conduct. You say public servants are just pigs wasting taxpayers' time. This is not, not okay. This is not constructive. So we deleted that. But we kept your other very uh, useful, sensible contributions. And because it's version controlled, everybody who is so willing to do dumpster diving can, can see the, the original comments. But for most people who enter for the first part of the discussion and reply to those civilized points. So you keep memory of all um, the original comments, yeah, sure. yeah. but you give like visibility to a part. Yes, yes. If you want to see the, you see this comment was yeah. edited. Uh, yeah, yeah. It says edited, and it says version three. So you can go back uh, to version two and version one if you have too much time. Uh, and so, yeah, yeah, exactly. But for the troll, it's yeah. important. Uh, yeah, but, but because, yeah, well, since people seem uh, disproportionately interested in this, uh, I will go into details. Trolls on the internet are just people who crave for attention that they cannot get from the real, real life, right? And so for people who... <laughs> I have a problem in the airport of Florence with the <laughs> trolls. Right, and so, uh, so the, the important thing is that you must hug the trolls knowing that even if they say 10 sentences, nine of which are trolling, just one sentence is useful, or it was not actually, but you can read it usefully, uh, you, you, you ignore those parts that was toxic, you maybe delete or moderate it out, but you respond very enthusiastically to the part that was constructive. Because they are just people craving attention. They learn within one or two exchange that bringing something useful to the table was the only way to get attention. 
And because they crave attention, they now think of ways to do constructive work. And so we, we reform the trails very quickly with, with systems like that by giving them due attention to just the part of it that was of benefit to the community. So the safe space was not just a, a you know, a moderation thing. It was also a, a uh, acculturation. We, we bring a culture of civilized discussion saying, if you crave attention, this is the only way you're, you're going to get it. So I hope I'm, I'm make, making sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. So just to yeah, sure. master that. Uh, so you said that, I mean, most of the, the interaction between the in-person and the online is mainly based on the idea that online, uh, the, 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 the function which is delivered online is the agenda setting. And you will have the, let's say, final development of the idea and the decision mm -hmm. in person. Exactly. Exactly, yes. Okay. But, but we use telepresence to extend what in-person means, of course. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. okay. yeah. So that was the, the principle. So you, you yes. never vote, neither in person? Um, we do straw votes, the way IETF uh, votes. Basically, it, it's a vote that is never binding. It is a way to, to see what people feel. And people can change their votes anytime. So, so this is not really voting, right? You're talking online or, or online, 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 online. Okay, but yeah. no, when you go in person, you you go voting for the final decision or not? Um, in case, I mean, the idea has spark. There are competing ideas which are not easily right. Um, the the idea of rough consensus is that the deliberation never ends until we have consensus. So, so if we don't have consensus, we say we leave it to the next administration. We don't even vote. Yeah, that's the idea. I got a question uh -huh. online. Yes. Are there examples in other communication spaces of this more nuanced approach to dealing with toxicity and trolling? Are there more examples to deal with trolls? With toxic narratives and trolling? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, so, um, the in, in other communication spaces, out yeah, of these. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. I, I see that. I, I'll show one in uh, about Uber uh, in, in the next slide. But uh, I, I want the next slide. Yes, yes, but, 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 but I want to stress the idea about safe space. Because safe space means usually that anything that's violating the code of conduct is not tolerated, right? It means zero toleration. But there's a difference between a safe space enforced by people and safe space enforced by algorithms. If you have a algorithmic safe space, the trolls um, don't play attrition game with mediators. Whereas before, like in Wikipedia, a Wikipedia editor, when it fights the, the trolls or the revert wars or something, the operators must put in exactly the same time as the people doing the vandalism, even with the help with bots, with robots, like automated tools, because the vandals also have automated tools, right? So, so you have to put in, when you're playing by the same rule, uh, exactly the same amount of attention. So if the trolls outnumber the moderators, then they dominate the attention of other people nearby. It could only be controlled when the mediator puts in disproportionate amount of uh, time and attention so that it overrides all the vendors and all the trolls. So what, what our innovation I would like to say is that we watch what the moderators do and then we turn them into code. That is to say we automate this kind of process of mediating of moderation so that 
any number of trolls are now faced with robo mediators, <laughs> so, so that they, they they cannot waste people's time. And when trolls see that they are not even wasting the operator's time, they they lose interest because there are much more interesting ways of wasting other people's time. Griefing, that's how they call it. Uh, other parts in the internet. So they, they go to those other parts of the internet. And I'm going to show an example with another automated system uh, in the Uber case. So thanks for the question. So let, let's go on because we're almost six. at six. Yes. Um, so, but with the, with the Vitaon system, um, we spent a lot of time saying no to the uh, ministry's proposals because the ministries always want to talk about the things that they feel like hot potatoes because they're civil servants and civil servants in Taiwan are in this very uninviable position as a new de democracy. If they do anything wrong, because we don't have an anonymous uh, civil servant culture like in the UK, they get blamed for it publicly. If they do something right, the elected officials get all the credit. So <laughs> the thing is that they, they, they're in a you know, very powerless position. So with things like Taiwan, public servants uh, feel very much empowered because they offset their, their responsibilities, but they gain credibility because they interact many, meaningfully with medicines as part of the deliberation uh, thing. So they bring us a lot of very tricky issues like... Um, Gay marriage, okay. So, so, so they say, okay, let's have a national deliberation on, on gay marriage. And then we say, no, we, we must keep saying no to this kind of thing because Vitaon was designed for like a town hall. It must affect only people who are netizens as the main stakeholders. We're like a small town of network using people negotiating with the government. This is how we get our legitimacy. Otherwise, people would say, it's just the technocrats, the elites, doing the deliberation, who are so good at typing at a keyboard or using a pen and pencil online or something, or showing up with telecommunication, deciding the fate of people who, who are not so good at this sort of thing. And we don't want that. So we, we must ask all the ministry to prove a very high correlation between the people they are going to affect and the people uh, you know that's on the internet all the time, the netizens. So because the Ministry of Justice cannot prove there is a co strong correlation between going on the internet and being gay, so, <laughs> so we, we don't do that case. So, um, so, so this is very important, actually. And then it must be something that is uh, codifiable, because otherwise it doesn't, doesn't really work. And, so, yeah. so, so this exclusion was not motivated by a more political uh, issue related to minority and majority, we are not going to, to discuss an issue of a minority in front of a majority, but uh, was more related to the internal coherence of the system of deliberation. Exactly, exactly. Because what we are saying essentially is that for the parliament, we are getting all the stakeholders on a multi-stakeholder dialogue that gets all the facts and all reflections and give a recommendation. But if this stakeholder does not represent everybody that's going to be actually having a stake because those people don't use the internet, then, then we lose this kind of legitimacy. And the parliament could very easily find representatives from other fields of life saying, but you're missing their voice because they are not on the internet. And, and then we lose the entire basis of this legitimacy of the Bitcoin system. I hope I'm, I'm making sense. Right. 
yeah. I understand what I mean. Yeah. The issues exactly to the stakeholders and there is an identity between what's at stake in the discussion and what the participants. Yeah, uh, exactly. Uh, yes. 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 Exactly yes. The, the, the yes. But do you think that I mean, progressively, are you able? Since you use, for example, a typical uh, uh, netizen topics as uh, to start uh, yeah. to introduce a methodology. This can be uh, like uh, can include uh, more, more, more people, people yes. once it uh, shows its effectiveness uh -huh. and the possibility to actually influence the uh -huh. public population. Yes, that's three slides. Three slides. Yeah. But do strike today. I think there's someone at home sending the slide. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. Um, I'm. I'm very happy. Actually, we get into so much detail because in, in Paris, I was like one minute per per slide. So even though it's taking everybody's time, I think it's kind of important. No, we want the space in which yeah, we discuss. Yeah, 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 yeah. These are ideas that serve to, uh, to our work. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That's great. Yeah, that's great. So, so yeah. So, when it is, and then our other requirement is that the ministry must not send us drafts of any laws or regulations, because by that time the the window of opportunity is so, so closed. It's like we're building a nuclear plant, but the color of the wall is up for deliberation. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't make sense, right? By that stage. So, what we ask is at least, even if you have a draft, don't show it. Show your problem analysis, show your stakeholder analysis, show your uh, cost-benefit uh, analysis, whatever. And for 30 days, refrain from making any suggestions as public servants. You now only serve the fact-finding team, the online discussion. And after 30 days, you're allowed to show your drafts. But everybody in the working group is also allowed to show their drafts. So we can have competing version of the drafts. But if the ministry show their draft first, before we have 30 days to get everybody understanding this topic, then they have an unbalanced power in, in, in setting the agenda. But after 30 days, when everybody knows about these things, uh, more or less, then their alternative draft is going to read at least coherent as the ministry drafts. And then it's possible to bring them together. But otherwise, it's impossible. It's just the, the public sector dominating the, the agenda setting. So that's the, the power analysis we did uh, on that hackathon uh, for this system to work. It, it, it really worked. Uh, we, we have one million uh, visits per month. Uh, we have a lot of subscribers. Uh, as you could see, just like in Wikipedia or Flash Mob or anything, this gets progressively down like 10%, 10%, 10%. But this is normal. So yes. uh, I, I was thinking that this, this rule that you, that you describe yes. now has a meaning, for example, um, in, the, in the planning system of, of Toscany, traditionally, you had a project and then you, you were doing the analysis to justify the project. Right. So the analysis were following the project, actually. And in many cases of law happens this. You have a political, ideological idea, then you do analysis to justify your idea. So the fact of inverting, you know, obliging people to show the analysis and then each one by its own think about the solution and then you can compare the solution after a certain time Invert the way in which usually the laws uh, mm -hmm. are uh, are conceived. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And this is 
this is actually very much empowering the civil servants, but it's decreasing the power of elected officials and parliament members who used to to do all the initial setting of the drafted law because they have this think tank, uh, the parties and so on, who, who, who know the initial context uh, of, of doing this thing. So this is weakening their mandate. But because of you know three independent non-nationalistic party <coughs> engineers running the country, uh, it is not a problem for Taiwan at that particular point of time. But this kind of opportunity doesn't really happen all, all the time everywhere. Mm. So um, yeah, and we have a, a very good net promoter score, meaning that people want to recommend their friends to go on V Taiwan. Uh, Do you have any idea about, for example, you have 30,000 subscribers mm -hmm, yes. and 2,000 commenters. Yes. Do, do you have anything to check uh, the degree of attention of the subscribers? Mm -hmm. Because the, the risk is that subscri subscribers are a very good number to send, okay? But then you can imagine that they are completely silent in the sense that they are not even reading. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, yes, yes. That's, that's, a, that's an excellent. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it, it literally is the next slide. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. So, so let me just go to the next slide. So, as a trainer, this slide I can spend an hour on, but we don't really have an hour to spend on this one slide. So, uh, I will talk in very brief terms. Um. This is all either free software or uh, at least free of charge software or like free uh, under 10,000 users or something like that. So this system is zero cost is what I'm saying. Uh, it costs nothing to set this up. And so to answer your question, we use MailChimp to send a monthly newsletter to our subscribers and it includes a tracking pixel that tells me uh, that how, how much time they spent reading the, the email, whether they actually click the links, and uh, whether in, uh, they engage in what kind of topics in the newsletter, uh, and we do actually A-B testing. Um, that, that I, I can talk for hours, but, but you, you get it, that idea, right? <laughs> and then um, we do uh, surveys and registrations using Typeform, which is a very mobile-friendly kind of uh, choice-making or voting platform but we vote for things to talk about, so we don't vote for things. This so is the issue is that you have a strong analytics part yes. in order to have an idea of yes. how many yes. subscribers are not just yes. formally subscribers, but yes. they yes. do and, Yes, and, and then we know that people want <laughs> to talk about Uber, and then Airbnb, and then Bitcoin, and then we know people do not want to talk about e-voting or something like that. And this is because Typeform has a, a interesting uh, thing called uh, a, a randomized, this is like a survey technology, right? So we show people in random order and ask them to pick multiple things they're interested in and things like that. And we correlate that uh, with the, the contributions they made before and the time they spent on the website and so on, so that we know uh, for absolute certainty, really, when we talk about Uber, how many people will come in the first day. Uh, within maybe 10% of margin of error. So, so without this data analytics, we would not launch deliberation blindly, is what I'm speaking. Yeah. So this is Typhoon. And then uh, the 
uh, forum software that we use. A lot of people use that now, actually. The ETA lab in, in France use that. Uh, it's called Discourse. And the company, startup who produced this open source tool, is called the Civilized Discourse Construction Kit Company. So this is optimized to, to have a civilized discussion where you can edit people's comments and when people who contribute frequently automatically promote it to moderators and they get badges. And when you register for the first three days, you cannot post anything with pictures. And you know, it has very, very tiny rules like this, but taken together, it enforces civility in a way that doesn't cause attrition on the moderator's time. And we asked all the... Um, ministries to, to publish their uh, statement of analysis on SlideShare as PowerPoint slides, and we ask them always to use a uh, sans-serif uh, black font that is more than, uh, the, the, the font weight must be more than uh, 300. Uh, we, we put a restriction on the font because people in Taiwan used to use fonts that are more calligraphic, that's looks very good on paper, but very bad on mobile devices. And that's how they, they always used to do things. They do uh, think Times New Roman. And, and Times New Roman will look very bad uh, on a deliberation space online like this when people are looking at the phone. So we even have a style guide for, for the ministries to publish their uh, deliberation material. And then uh, all the issues and agenda and settings were captured on Gitbook, which is a way for people to write markdown to publish uh, structured data online, like a book where people can download in PDF or EPUB or something like that. And any uh, three-letter acronyms in Gitbook are defined in a Google spreadsheet uh, with uh, you know the, the keyword and the English translation and the description and the cross-referencing URLs. And all these are published using this free uh, publication platform called GitHub Pages, which costs nothing and scales to hundreds of thousands of viewers without, without us paying anything. And then uh, we have uh, YouTube, of course, to keep all the video records and the uh, real-time uh, interactions. And we use Lifehouse In, which experiments with us uh, virtual reality uh, recording um, techniques. We are not really uh, using it in the early stage of deliberations now, but we have a lot of pilot projects where, like in this room, they just throw uh, a spherical camera uh, here, mounting here. So it, it captures everybody's nonverbal expressions in the same time. And then, uh, so it's called, the company is called Trip Moment. And we, we do a lot of um, pilot projects. We, we've done six like that. And, and it changed the quality of the discussion because when you see it uh, from the real time, it feels like you're, you're there on the ceiling, really. And then you can see what everybody's uh, face looks like when I speak a sentence. So it feels less like theatric performance, it, it puts a less uh, incentive to people uh, to speak to the camera and try to make a very good impression because they know they're only going to keep capturing this square, but uh, it, it creates an incentive for people who really get consent and understanding from people actually around the table because the speaker camera is capturing this uh, also, so if everybody is rolling their eyes, uh, pe people will see that. <laughs> yeah. so, so that is uh, another uh, important method. And of course, all the we have stenographers who publish the transcript in real time. That's a sunflower technology, uh, Hackpad plus Sayit, and then uh, and then I explained that we use the FCM, the focused conversation method, uh, that says we explore all the facts before we ask people's feelings. 
We ask all the feelings before we ask for ideas. We ask for the ideas before we do decision. And it must be done in the sequence because ideas are sticky in people's mind. Once people have an idea, they ignore other people's feelings. So, so we don't do that. So we, we strictly follow this. And we follow this so strictly now that when the ministry proposed their problem analysis, we ask them to rephrase it in a ORID form and in this sequence. So what facts do the ministry know? What feelings do the ministry have about facts and what ideas they have and only in this sequence. So this is our toolkit, so to speak. So I'll talk about police, the ro robotic facilitator system as my last talk. Uh, but 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 this this slide really is our entire toolbox of the Bitcoin deliberation system. So um, this is we did not invent this. Um, Many of this methodology is done by Cornell University Regulation Project, but we improved uh, on their methodology. Um, they, they had uh, professors and students, uh, post-PhDs, as mediators, but we <coughs> have ministries with their own usernames on the foreign software, and we created a rule that's shown on the logins saying anybody who tags, that is to say who press at and then after that, for example, MOF, meaning Ministry of Finance, or MOEA, Ministry of Economic Affairs, any ministry that gets mentioned this way will get an email saying you're getting mentioned. And by the second of their getting the email, a countdown starts. Within seven days, they must provide an official public reply to anything that mentions their username. And, and this changes the dynamic completely. Because whereas before they could reply privately, they could stall, they could say this loses face, so, so we ignore. Uh, we say, if you don't do this, the platform will not do deliberation on any of your cases. So in order to join, you must do this. And with, with a four-week deliberation period, that means four exchanges with anybody's concerns about fact-finding about that ministry. And for many of ministries, they really just print this foreign email, and then they sign it and with the initial idea, and they send it for approval for the head of the ministry uh, with a pen and paper and so on, and have another people type it in to the foreign. But this is, this is still okay. We allow seven days for this entire paper-based process to go through. The important thing is that it is so public, they cannot go retract their words. So they were forced to admit a lot of shortcomings that were not possible uh, if they don't have this guarantee. And whereas in Cornell, the synthesizers are the professors. Here, the synthesizers, the working groups, are just anybody who make an a active contribution, so an IETF style. And then, again, any offline collaboration that we meet face-to-face even the preparatory meetings are kept in record and published online. And any online forum, system, software, whatever, are printed to pen and paper to the ministry's archives. So, so this is anything that happens in one space happens also in another space in as much fidelity as possible. So this is the, the design principle that we adopt on top of the regulatory methodology. So yeah, so so yes, we are expanding it to the general public, <laughs> um, and this is because uh, the National Development Council thought this is such a good idea, and they really want to talk about gay marriage. So so they set up 
another website uh, called Joint Government Taiwan that is government run. And so uh, I, I don't have time to go into a lot of details, but uh, the innovations where they have a toll-free number where you can call and have somebody read to you uh, the, the top concerns currently trending on that website. And you can tell the operator over the telephone your input, and, and they will type it to the foreign software. And if you please leave your mobile phone or, or telephone number, when the government reply to you, they will call you back. Um, so, so, um, so w w I mean, OK, so this expands you know, netizens to people with a telephone, which is a lot more people. Uh, it's so, a little bit more costly also, I guess. Right, right. So, so I mean, I mean GovZero, we are volunteers, so we can only run things with zero cost. But, but this is the government speaking, so they can hire telephone operators. Yeah, so... A call center. A call center, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, a, a governmental call center. <laughs> yeah, and, and we only do early consultation. But because it's government, they also do e-petition, which is something we cannot do because it requires the empowerment from the administration, obviously, right? So, so they also do that. And because they, they extend for, for anybody with a telephone, I think I'm of the last generation who draw a telephone this way. Uh, <laughs> um, That's my generation. Yes. Uh, my childhood uh, is also oh, this. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Yeah. My teenagerhood and your childhood. Yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> so, so, uh, so, yeah. So, so because uh, we, you know, expand the wire web to anybody with this kind of phone, uh, they they now think they have sufficient legitimacy to talk about gay marriage because everybody has a phone uh, or something like that. Yeah. So, without going into too much detail, yes, this is being adopted as a national agenda by the National Development Council. So for the by this temporary government. No, 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 by the next government. Oh, the next. Right. So because this is a the, the end. So the, temp the temporary government you're talking about ended. It, 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 uh, replaced. Well, well, it was the election happened right okay. uh, in in, in uh, February, but uh, in uh, January that that is to say a month ago. But uh, it does not. The legislators are already in office now, and uh, the nationalists kept. 30%, 20-something percent, negligible amount uh, of the seats. <clears throat> and then the equivalent of, of Podemos uh, got five people in the parliament, uh, which is great. And then uh, the, the Progressive Party, the, the main uh, you know, counterparty um, to the nationalist government, gets 60% or something uh, of the parliament seats. So it completely changes. It flips the, the, the seats. Uh, and the new president of the DPP, she uh, was elected, but she's not in the office until May, May, May the 20th, uh, because of a constitutional loophole. So um, we have a lot of those things. So, 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 so now we're in a, a waiting cabinet, so to speak, who now answer to the new legislators, but is not answering yet to the president uh, that is being elected, uh, already been elected. So for those three months, this is a lot of fun. Um, the, the civil engineer trained in MIT, uh, um, Mao Zhiguo, he resigned, uh, as all the cabinets must do after a national level election. But the new prime minister was the vice minister, prime minister. So we have a Google engineer now as the prime minister. And then the prime minister knows he only has three months of time. 
So he says, okay, I will work with the new government administration team to transfer everything, but I have a precondition. Any meeting that the new administration is having with us, I promise not to destroy any records, any archives, but in exchange, I will only do the transfer of power and explanation of the current ministry uh, agenda and everything under a direct live stream. So he's basically transferring the power not to the opposition party, but to, to everybody. So, so it, it means that everybody now has the same knowledge as the new president, and they can now oversee the new president in a way. But he could only do that because V Taiwan ratified this open data policy, this open government policy, saying that anything that the government does must be transparent in a reusable way. So he writes on this and saying, okay, there must be no secrets between the party that's losing power and the party that's gaining power. We're now transferring the power to the general public, which is great. And yeah, so it will take three months to, to do that and join uh, GOVTW or VTaiwan are a very important part of it because then it allows a, a, a technical topics to be debated or to be shown to the national uh, populace that the policy making from now on has a deliberative democratic spirit and attitude. And this is also because the new president, uh, Ms. Uh, Tsai Ing-wen, run on a campaign platform that says open source policy making and maker spirit. So <laughs> to, to, to make good of her campaign, she also must kind of agree to this kind of way of transferring power, otherwise <coughs> her platform means nothing. So that's a lot of fun. So, uh, so to end my talk, um, which I'll take maybe another 15 minutes, unless people are so interested, we take another half an hour, uh, I, I will talk about something that is not domestic. Um, the V Taiwan process, or the joint process that we design after that, as uh, me as an advisor, are really only good for domestic issues. Because with Uber, even if we get all the representatives, all the stakeholders, they sit down, they agree on something, Uber shouldn't care. Uber wouldn't care. They don't even have a physical operating center in Taiwan. Uh, if the consensus is to shut down their business, their business is already shut down. There's an app from elsewhere. So the, 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 thing, the thing is that this kind of thing really um, is domestic. And we're facing, I think, what was the scholars say, post-democracy entities, uh, where, where they, they could ignore the entire rule about democracy altogether because they operate on a completely different domain. Of, of human behavior, right? So because they, they, they are not part of any physical place, they ignore the multilateralism part of sovereignty. So, so Uber basically is a, a symbol of a kind of lobbying power that transcends uh, sovereign power. And I, I will make just one very quick example. In New York, when the mayor uh, is not even deliberating, starting to think about a law that will limit the, the quantity of Uber drivers. Uber uh, introduced a new button in, in their app in New York. It used to be Uber Pop, Uber Black, Uber X. I assume people know something uh, about that. You can call a different kind of uh, thing, even a helicopter uh, in New York. But they did. Helicopter? Yeah, even a helicopter. Uh, so, and then a boat in Amsterdam. So, so in, in any case, uh, Uber introduced. <laughs> yeah. So, so Uber introduced a, a button that says Uber with the mayor's proposed laws. And so if you call an Uber, it's usually saying you must wait for eight minutes or five minutes, right? 
But if you slide to that button, it shows 50 minutes, one hour, five hours. So, so it's very effective lobbying tool. It, it's telling all the users, you know, if the mayor's law passes, whether it's true or not, um, then, then you will wait forever for an Uber, and this is not acceptable. And from, from a social computing perspective, this is genius. This is wonderful operation. But from a uh, deliberative democracy viewpoint, this is nightmare. We, we now have a, a, a non-answerable to sovereign power entity who could engage or mobilize much more people than public servants could do. And all the celebrities were retweeting this because it was sensational. And the mayor has to retract even the, the idea of talking about this law. So, so Uber is... It's Uber. It's, it's super. Uh, right. So, um, so uh, here are the places. The green means they were legal in those cities. Uh, the red meaning they're illegal, but they're operating anyway. Uh, the, the pink meaning that they're controversial, meaning that they're being debated. They're of questionable legality. And uh, of course, exactly, exactly. Yes. So uh, when we did a poll to all the Vitaman members on a uh, bottom-up topics, not ministry topics, people who want to talk about that doesn't have a ministry support yet. Uber is, is at the very top. Anytime we run this, Uber is at the very top. So um, for Uber, we had to redesign the entire flow of deliberation because we know the existing process doesn't work with this kind of entity. So um, we identified the Ministry of uh, Transport, who at that time has been fining Uber for violating the law for over an, a, a million euros by that time. But the Uber says, we are not under the jurisdiction. We will take it all the way to the Supreme Court, which they did, uh, to, to fight, saying we are really an economy, uh, you know, share, writing, right, sharing, whatever, uh, platform. So we are under jurisdiction of Ministry of Economy. It's not a transport problem. And then the, the Ministry of Economy does not want to propose their problem analysis because their problem analysis doesn't agree with the one that the transport ministry is saying publicly. So, so they were afraid of losing face. They will feel like one ministry fighting against another. right? And then uh, Jacqueline, the, the minister, who, who went on Gap Zero Hackathon, says what she really cares about is taxing and uh, maybe insurance. And this belongs to the Ministry of Finance. But the Ministry of Finance says we don't have the expertise. Indeed, we don't have the, the, the interest <laughs> to, to do a V-Taiwan problem analysis. We think this is the job of the economy and transport ministries. And I think Taiwan is not alone. Everywhere in the world, we have the same dynamic, the three ministries playing sometimes against each other's interests uh, for problems, sorry, challenges like Uber. And, and that's what we did then, is we, we, we think professional mediators are needed. A mediation space is no longer enough. We must have somebody who connects directly to all the taxi fleets who already surrounded the Ministry of Transport, as other taxis in other countries did, uh, and, uh, and also Uber itself, and Uber's competitors, Lyft, whatever, right? And then, uh, through them, we should reach the individual 
uh, like limousine drivers which are, who are in the civil society but they don't have an association which is why they are adopted in this paragraph but then again some independent drivers have an association and uh, we have to include them in the deliberation process because they, outside of the fleet, they, they may want to join Uber, they may want to join the taxi fleet. So we have the association. And through the association, we also reach the local government's policymakers, like the cities where the Uber operates in, and also the you know uh, other four hire companies that's already local, operating somewhat like Uber, but in a much more smaller scale. Uh, like the, the mom-and-pop uh, shops uh, of, of ride-sharing, so ride-sharing companies. So, um, and again, they, they don't have a representative, which is why they are dotted. So our power analysis of this challenge is then to find people who the association would trust, who the taxi fleet would trust, and the finance ministry would trust, and for those uh, mediators to talk to each other and to design a deliberative process that will please at the same time everybody who connects with them and gets a buy-in from the civil servants from the three uh, ministries and that took us two months it's very very difficult uh, so but we did it so so we designed a process that will uh, allow us to reach all these people at the same time so basically all the drivers in Taiwan was the stakeholders and then all the passengers of whatever taxi fleet, ride-sharing, Uber, whatever, were also stakeholders. And we must prove that we can reach all of them before this deliberation starts to have a comparable uh, mobilization power versus Uber itself, right? Because it could very easily reach this amount of people like in New York City. So we have to reach at least this amount of people and then more. And the process we did for this is again, we crowdsource the agenda. But we use this idea called overlapping consensus. That says people with different ideologies, they could never agree on ideologies. But if we make the issue specific enough, they would agree on the practicalities, right? So this is, I think this is well known in the academic circle by now. So we choose a specific, it says, what about, <clears throat> You don't have a driver, professional driver's license, but you carry somebody as part of your driving to their wanted destination and you charge them for it. And that's it. That is our issue. So it says nothing about Uber, not about sharing economy, not about transport, anything. It says a very specific thing that anybody could do and people could have a consensus on. That is a very tiny slice of the entire Uber challenge. And then we say everything that we uh, collect from the people on this deliberative process for a month will be published for independent analysis as open data. We don't do an analysis because no ministries are willing to do an analysis. So instead, we ask what people feel about this thing. We ask what they think about this thing. We record everything. We publish everything as open data. And we ask people from the academic community, the data scientists, Uber themselves, whoever, look at this data and tell us what your analysis is. And that becomes the agenda, which we guarantee a deliberation um, a month from, from that day. And this is the interface that we came up with. This is designed for, for drivers, of course. Uh, and people on the taxi. 
So they don't have a minute of time, which was the Facebook limit, right, of the old V one process. They don't, they don't have one minute. So they have uh, a, a red light. It's maybe 10 seconds. Okay. Uh, no, we did say no voting while driving. But uh, the, the, the idea was that they could park uh, uh, to the street a little bit and spend maybe 15 seconds on our deliberation interface. And this interface only demands 10 seconds of their time, and then they could start writing again. And so this interface is very simple. On your phone, which you will get this link on the same hour of the day, uh, in a one specific afternoon, we announce the URL to all the mediators to those different interest groups, so they get the URL at the same time. And then they spread this URL through whatever channel they have, Telephone, SMS, Line, Uber has its own, you know, uh, closed group uh, of uh, instant messaging and things like that, Facebook, whatever. But the point is that on the same hour of day, when they go on this place, they see people in four or five different groups already. They don't feel overwhelmed by only one kind of people uh, dominating the discussion. And when they go on it, they see one simple sentiment. And this is picked at random. Uh, from a poll and they just click agree or disagree and that's it and when you click agree or disagree you see your avatar move it's uh, agree or disagree with the phrase with the sentence yeah with the sentence yes. Yes. okay yes. not with their belonging no no no, to no, the no. Group. exactly yes okay because the group is based on the on the sentence yes we have three sentences that says uh, I have a professional driver license, and I have a driver license, and that I have taken Uber before. Uh, so you can say yes or no on these. Okay. And, and the groups are created on, on the crossing between the two sentences. No, the, the groups are created automatically based on any number of questions. So this this is like a survey, except all the. Uh, statements aside from the nine, which we prepare initially, when you tap nine times, you will have answered all the initial questions, and then you will feel that your interest is not being reflected. So we ask, what do you think? What do you feel? And then you can then say, okay, I feel passenger liability is actually very important and you didn't actually mention in your nine questions. And this becomes then the thing for other people to vote on after you. So, so any sentiment that they write must begin with I feel or I think, which is the same word in Mandarin. Uh, and then they, they become then things for other people to agree or disagree on. So when you agree or disagree on something, you see your position gradually change based on your answers. And if you log in with Facebook or Twitter, you don't have to, uh, then you, you have, uh, or email, then you have the capability of writing new sentiments. And when you log in with a social account, you see your friends. Uh, otherwise, you see people with some much more uh, like celebrities or people with more followers on Twitter instead. But the point is, first, you see at a glance that there are four different groups with very, very different views. But your friends are among all those groups. So these are not your enemies. These are your Facebook friends. It's just you don't talk about Uber usually. But now, for the first time, you know how they feel about Uber. Okay, so 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 it creates a sort of non-antagonistic relationship. Second, you see people's positions can change, and third, we use algorithm. It's called dimensional reduction, 
to um, dimensional uh, reduction. So in a nine uh, yes or no question, this is like a point in a nine dimension space. So people are really grouped in a nine dimension space, but we don't usually think in nine dimensions. And as more people contribute, we are now in the 40 dimension space, which is a very large dimension. But when people have a natural grouping on some of the most divisive, that is to say, uh, this is like the most controversial on Reddit, some questions will naturally group people who answer yes or no, that will become the determinant of their other answers to other questions. Those are called primary factors. And the algorithm could identify the primary factor, the two primary factor that is currently going on, and using the primary factor as the x-axis, and the second primary factor as the y-axis, so that you can see on your mobile phone how people really are grouped on those two most divisive issues. Okay, and, am I making sense? This is technical, but yeah. How many questions can it take this, uh, this kind of system? Seven. Seven. It takes seven to start to do grouping, but then it could scale to thousands okay, of questions. Not, not a, there's not a limit, but there is a limit. Still, of, uh, yeah. focus on the two most controversial between these uh, thousand questions. Yeah. So the the thing is that once you answer, because you only start to show up in the group after answering seven random questions. So by that time, you probably already know what has been determined before. Especially, you can click into it to see the current consensus. So people will only write when they have new sentiments to contribute that they feel is not being reflected on this space. This is open space technology with a reflective projection, but it's carried online. This is our simulation of the sunflower reflective space, but uh, on an online space. <coughs> that people, you know, whereas we were occupying, people who are leftists joined this street's deliberation. People who are uh, ecological greenists joined this street of deliberation. They, they vote with their, their uh, you know, uh, feet, but it was still reflected through this projection and then captured online. So we're trying to recreate this kind of experience on a mobile phone, basically. That requires only 10 seconds of period time. So as they are doing this, um, the system rewards consensus by only showing within each group the highest agreement. So people are motivated to convince their neighbors. And at any given point, you can run a, you know, generalized linear regression, or you can run a primary factor analysis, or run a, you know, any kind of those geeky words uh, on, on this data to, to find why people are voting the way they're voting. So in the first week, we have four groups, Uber drivers, taxi fleets, uh, Uber passengers, other passengers. And then within the group, they now try to convince each other because we show, again, only the top ones with consensus. So group one, initially was under this consensus saying, they are criminals. We should cancel their registration immediately. The other group was united under this sentiment. When I'm not in a hurry, even if taxis are passing in front of me, I will call a Uber. So as you can see, it's very polarized. Right? Initially in the first week, uh, people couldn't really agree on anything but they agree on the other side is the enemy, okay? But when you do a multiplication, these are minorities. 
right? They, they convinced nobody on the other three groups. And even within the group, when you time with the group that represent the overall population, they're not even 50% of the entire population. So when you click into the majority opinion tab, you see nothing. There is no majority opinion, okay? And then, because people compete for the intergroup, uh, intra-group agreement, they start to propose sentiments that are more moderate. So group one, after five days, converge, saying, okay, this is not about Uber. The Ministry of Transport and Communication should find any unlicensed passenger vehicles. The fact that they're only finding Uber and not other measures may be a problem, but this is not about Uber. They're, it's just them doing their job, and this is getting much more uh, consensus in that group. In group two, invented this kind of thinking, saying many of the large city taxis are joining the taxi fleet because the fleet are capitalistic, they have advertisement and whatever, they have other ways to earn money than the taxi cab. So their economic pressure. Now Uber is a way for an independent driver to join many fleets and it increase their labor union bargaining power against the taxi fleet. But ingenious argument. And when, when, when they proposed this argument, not only they garnered the support of everybody in the Uber sympathizers, but they gained 2% of populace. Some taxi drivers jumped groups uh, just by seeing this sentiment. So, <laughs> yeah. was not having a good experience with the fleet, probably. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. They, they now think, ah, oh, this, this makes some sense. <laughs> so, so they compete for their, their in, intra-group uh, but still, when you time this, it's still not a majority. This is barely 50%, right? So now the first majority opinion uh, appears on the uh, second week. And that is also the week where the four groups become two groups. So the Uber uh, drivers convince their passengers, mostly. And then the taxi fleets convince the non-Uber passengers, mostly. So, um, so yeah, this one, everybody agrees. So laws and regulations should progress. But this is so general, uh, you cannot really act on this. But this is a, a true feeling. This says the regulations are not set in stone. And we, we show, you know, of the 400 or so people that have seen it at the time, most of it has agreed. And now, once the first majority opinion appears, people now compete for the majority opinion ratio. Right? So now they, they try to improve on this score. So people now compete like this. Review is important. We must balance the interests of riders and drivers. But safety is the most important. Who would disagree with that? <laughs> so they get even higher score on, on the scoreboard. Um, so that's the second week. Now by the third week, we have a winner. This is the highest uh, score anybody has ever, ever got. Um, this is from Arvin uh, of Mozilla Taiwan, a Firefox developer, um, a free software guy. So he, he said, the government should leverage this opportunity to challenge the taxi industry to introduce the same five-star rating system that Uber has to guarantee quality. Because now if all the taxi cabs independent or in the fleet must answer to the same five-star rating system where the rider can also rate their passengers, then we will get a very high quality and, and so on. Everybody agrees, right? It is a very good idea. <laughs> and then the, this opinion, which was uh, like... 60% uh, for in the first week, saying 
we don't argue with criminals, basically, uh, started declining on the, on the third week. On the third week, more people did not say, okay, even if they are criminals, in my opinion, we should still sit down and have a deliberation with them. And that uh, number only increases. That is to say more people are in favor of deliberation on the third week. On the fourth week, we start getting real suggestions. Um, our cutoff point is 80% uh, consensus in any group. So it has to convince at least four people out of five in all the groups. Okay, so these suggestions survived this test and most of them only appear on the fourth week when people already are done with competing for majority feelings. Okay, so now it says whatever the law draws up, it shouldn't be because of Uber. And the taxation, it must have a good story about taxation. And this is a, a new thing. All the UberX things must uh, register. They must have a U or something on their windshield, knowing that they're, they're operating for Uber. And when inside it, you must check the photo and number and so on, so that you know that it's the same person driving than the person that's showing on the, on the phone. This is also very sensible. And the other sentiment is saying, Transport is like food and medicine. So it makes sense to be more stringent because it's a matter of not only just uh, economy, but public safety. Everybody agrees. And then people say, some people say private passenger vehicle, when they do ride sharing, they should not be taxed. It's okay for them to not be taxed. But if they do that, it should be limited to be two shifts per day. Meaning that I go to work, I go back to work, I write people, register in platform, why not? But it should be limited in, in, in numbers so that if you want to evade tax, you can do it as part of business, right? And even if you do that, passenger insurance should be mandatory and the insurance uh, company should take this kind of insurance. And now finally, um, people should be able to join multiple fleets. If you join Uber, Uber must not exclude you from joining, you know, Taiwan Taxi or some other fleets. So as, as you can see, this is actually very reasonable. Like, like this is actionable suggestion. Right? So, and then we use those suggestions to do a comparative analysis internationally. And then say, you know, for suggestion one through six, this is how the other countries are doing it. And then we show it to, to everybody uh, before the deliberation. And now we have the deliberation. We, we show the consensus sentiments, we show the consensus uh, suggestions, expectations, and the six criteria. And we show it like a progress bar. We try to extract promise out of everybody who showed up. Uh, this is the scholars, ministry, the three ministries, Uber, Uber Hong Kong, Uber Asia, uh, and also um, association of private drivers, uh, the fleets, and so on. And they, they all sat down and we look at the, the consensus. And then we ask everybody, do you agree with those consensus? Are you willing to make compromise on a court of those consensus? For example, the insurance policy, uh, the CEO of Uber Taiwan said, we will help people claiming uh, their damage if they ride an Uber. And I asked, how many claims has happened before in the two years or one year and a half? And Gu Kai said, there hasn't been any cases. And then, um, somebody asks, okay, so what is the insurance terms? Can you show us the terms? And the association uh, leader says, uh, well, he doesn't have it with him uh, today. But then their lawyer said, okay, just after the celebration meeting, we will send it to Jacqueline's office, our exact terms of uh, private insurance. So that is checked. 
And then uh, we asked the Ministry of Transport what kind of uh, legal basis they're they're on to to find the Uber. And then the taxi just pleased saying, if we are allowed to do search pricing, that is to say a higher end of taxi cab, we can compete with Uber on their own terms. And then the tra- uh, Ministry says, okay, we're, we, we will deregulate that. So you can compete with Uber on that term. And then the Independent Driver Association says, the reason we're not talking with Uber is that they take 20% of the cut. If they are willing to lower to 2%, we will start driving to, for Uber tomorrow. What? Okay, so this is, becomes a, a matter of negotiation, right? And then, um, so we extract promises. But at the end, uh, we, everybody in the nation sees that Uber is checking four of the six marks, but it's not willing yet to register a local company that pays the local tax and the insurance. And because of that, the ministry is still finding them but if a local government agrees to take on that registration, uh, it could be made legal. And so everybody knows why it's not yet legal. And there is no, no need to fight because they are not fulfilling the, the consensus of all the drivers and uh, passengers in Taiwan. So this is what we call an empowered space. This is why we say all the ministries agree, saying we share our early stage uh, facts and reflections each of us agree that the agenda setting power does not belong exclusively to us. And then we bridge it out to this cross-sectoral space where uh, we know beforehand the private sector and the civil society will enter on equal terms on the same day. And then we empower the space to decide the policy for Uber in Taiwan. So this is how, how we redesign the deliberation process for Uber. And uh, the very good thing about this is that the initial nine questions, who is involved, or do you want to know, how shall we respond, is then carried verbatim for Airbnb. And the Airbnb people has been watching the Uber, real-time transcripts, everything from the very beginning. We didn't know that, but uh, so, so they know that we're using a timeline based on Wikipedia. So Airbnb sympathizer has edited the Wikipedia page that we're about to use <laughs> to, to reflect uh, more, more, more better about uh, Airbnb. And then they, they sent uh, an email to everybody that has used Airbnb before in Taiwan because they have their email address saying, go on Taiwan and voice your opinions in support of Airbnb to keep us legal in Taiwan. So when you see three groups of people, all these people responded after the Airbnb's call. And there are three groups of people. One third says it has to satisfy four check marks. And another group says, uh, at least we should ensure that when people say it's their home, it's really their home. Then one must not have 10 homes in the Taipei city renting on Airbnb, always identical photo that is not bed and breakfast. But group three says, you know, the government stay out of it, but they're in the minority. But all these groups of people, they came in this point in time. Before that, we had pretty good consensus on people who haven't used Airbnb before. But once Airbnb sent an email to all their members, uh, we get an explosive um, growth in participation. Um, So this is why we don't call ourselves a voting platform. Because if we call ourselves a voting platform, we will have lost at this point. Because this is so unbalanced uh, representation. But because we say we are just a reflection and objective 
uh, fact-gathering platform, we were able to say, okay, we know there's actually not that many people using Airbnb in Taiwan. So let's assume that this is their consensus degree, but people who have not used should have at least the same importance, and this is their consensus. So we were able to show this side by side, not to determine by the sheer numbers, but by common sense. So, and the main contention, regardless of whether they have used Airbnb or not, is that they're in favor of being an Airbnb uh, sharer, but, uh, but not a tenant. Because a tenant doesn't have insurance, but a landlord has insurance according to Airbnb uh, regulations. Uh, so, so that's the main contention. And then, but the reflections are generally positive. And the expectations are uh, generally positive. Airbnb is not a troublemaker because they're uh, really just another evolution of Agoda or Booking.com or something. But still, the three points are important. And then we still did a comparative analysis of the same format. Now we have uh, the hostel association, the uh, use hotel association, and Airbnb, Hong Kong Airbnb, Korea Airbnb, co-founder even flew to Taiwan, and uh, the scholars, the ministries, and so on. And the magical thing is that the Airbnb people said, you know, we sent things to our members. We are a company who respects our members. We see this is their consensus. So every point that I show on the screen, they said, we have discussed this and we agree. We agree that Taiwan will be the first place where we work with the authorities on ensuring that no people rent 10 identical houses. We will uh, ensure this uh, kind of uh, um, tenant insurance and we agree with everything in, in short. And so there's no need for deliberation. And by the end of the deliberation, the, the hotel uh, chain uh, association had, who, who was actually protesting before this deliberation process, and went up and to the Airbnb with a book of all the thousands of legal hotels in Taiwan and say, okay, I, I see you agree with everything, so I, I, I think of you as a good guy. So please help us because Agoda and Booking.com takes 15% cut. And I, I understand that you only take 5% even after taxes. So please help us to, to bring all your hotels on your platform. So, so, so that is how the deliberation ended. And this is because we made an example out of Uber. It is like a checkbox that it doesn't fit, so it's not legal. Airbnb played by the rules. And of course, we thank all our contributors. Now, this is the, the last slide. So the, the ideal after this Airbnb is, of course, try to think of not as sectors of people specializing in the public, private, or civic sector, but think of a, a, a fluid kind of role where people, when they share with money, they become the private sector, they share with voluntary time, they become civic, they uh, uh, taxing and redistribution, they become the government, but they can play many roles, in, even within a day, even within a uh, deliberation, because the space was designed by robotic uh, algorithmic uh, mediators who don't care where you're coming from, as long as you can make uh, convince each other of their consensus. So this is how we tra transform people who could only like and unlike to share our links, which takes maybe 10 seconds, to do question and answers takes one minute, and to do real discussion takes five minutes, and to do deliberation takes an hour or so. And finally, uh, if they make uh, contributions, we invite them to a face-to-face -face agenda setting meeting where they spend two hours with us. And this is my last slide. Thanks so much. Thank you.
No, it's fine. It's fine. Yeah. So, so yeah. What about the this kind of process? Any is, is, that, is, that, is that easy to answer? Because there are so many things to digest uh -huh. in terms of the small variation between one and the other. The, the general structure uh -huh. seem uh, to make sense. Uh, but uh, I mean, the, the the few knowledge, for example, I have. Uh, of the tools that you mm -hmm. use in each one of yeah, these yeah. phases, so the tools for uh, tracing yeah. the, the, the clustering, mm -hmm. it yes. uh, uh, does not allow me, at least, I don't know, or mm -hmm. the others, to um, to judge the feasibility, mm -hmm. for example, in a, in a case here. It convinced me the idea of starting mm -hmm. with feelings mm -hmm. and slowly mm -hmm. arriving. I mean, the, the timeline mm -hmm. you said, yeah. well, the first, yes. the second, the third, and the fourth mm -hmm. uh, week, and then the mm -hmm. deliberation space mm -hmm. make uh, totally sense uh, mm -hmm. in relation to the progressive opening of people to the switch yes. of people from a category to the other. Mm -hmm. But obviously, um, I mean, there are so many questions in my mind that I'm not even able to, I have to, see that to formulate them. Really, probably it could be used, that was one combination you used in a kind of setting which is focused on kind of relation. It would be really interesting to test it in like a local setting on a participatory basis in a municipal level. That's something that, I mean, in my opinion what is really interesting is that uh, it is on a hand enough gamified it also takes you to think a little bit. Uh, I mean, it's not so pure gamification. You are not a fake person that game points and, uh, for example, uh, creating a fake identity. So, I mean, it sounds to me what we were talking about a kind of serious game uh, that uh, yes, takes, exactly, uh, exactly. takes you in that direction. It could be, let's say, quite a nice way to. Attract people at least in the beginning, mm -hmm. creating like a stream of opinions, and yes. uh, after that, maybe apply more classical methods. Yes, of exactly. Magic, yes. You know, because, but yeah, yes. I also am a little bit overloaded of uh, information. So yeah, right. I was made free the. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yes. Same so, thanks uh, for, for staying so, so late and yeah, also uh, was, uh, across the internet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Maybe they, they, the, the people out of, uh, on the other side of the internet, they are eating now uh, while right. we are not doing it. Exactly. So yes. Yes. Right yes. Now, yes. So yes. Right. 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 Uh, behind the camera. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> but that's for. So we are in pyjama, maybe yes. relaxed. Exactly. Place, yes. We had 11 people uh, last time we checked. I know. Mm -hmm. um, oh, well, that's great. I don't know. Uh, uh, okay. Right. So. so for, for municipalities, uh, I think it will uh, depend a lot on virtual reality, which is uh, another three-hour workshop, but not, not for today, yeah. <laughs> no, it's possible that the, also, I mean, uh, the, 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 result, the positive results you had are driven also on the, on the, how to call, the emotions that are getting around these two issues. So the existence of tensions in society, if I think how many times I got to the station in Portugal and I found a taxi driver protesting against Uber. So uh, you have to also to think about how much the issue you propose intersects uh, a sort of uh, no, interest of yeah, the general exactly. population, which can happen in a specific moment. My question is, uh, this method seems also very... Uh, 
pose it. So my question is, you have the you have the setting that now you already tested in in in, in some cases. Is it possible to decide to apply it from one day to the other if you have a very uh, hot uh, issue, a yeah. hot topic around? Because right. uh, but you did in some time, because this, the, these two issues were years that they were being discussed in society. Mm -hmm. But a sort of Istanbul, if you have uh, a more, uh, I don't know, a, a yeah, fire yeah, yeah. disco, exactly. and I'm thinking about stories that happened in yes. Romania that yes. brought the government to. Yes. Uh, we, we use this tool not in a, a national empower space but as a civil society mm -hmm. as a test drive long before this uh, Uber and Airbnb. Uh, we did a death penalty deliberation with this after a random killing uh, in Taipei. So um, Taiwan is one of the last countries to still have the death penalty and a lot of people... Uh, the last country among the democratic one, because it's the undemocratic one. <laughs> Do you release also the data, obviously, all the data you collect? Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah, released in open form. Yeah, 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 of course. Quite implicit in what you... Yes, what yes. Just in... Yeah, because otherwise we cannot run independent analysis. That is yeah, a yeah, bit basic. Yeah, that's allow other third parties to run their own independent analysis. Yes, yes, that, that's right. That's uh, right, and, and uh, as you can see, this differs from the usual detail ministry proposed because we ask ministry to provide their initial analysis. But for, for topics like this, nobody is willing to, to be the one to do the initial analysis. So, so we ask the, the entire academic community. Also, because I mean, the Uber case, for example, the level of violence uh, between a cab driver and uh, exactly. the Uber driver was really. Exactly. So, right. So if the ministry used one wrong word, they get they get up you occupy tomorrow. Yeah. I remember uh, like in Milan. Uh -huh. I mean, the, we don't have like they followed home uh, mm -hmm. the vice director of Uber Italy after a conference, and they start like hanging uh, like things outside the the home of this person. That <laughs> was really getting exactly. off. And it, it has become, it was a right. red, uh, right. this was a red bubble on Milan. Uh, right, 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 right. Uh, on your map. So right. it has been yes. illegal uh, exactly. after that. Yeah, so so after after we, we, we did uh, the Uber deliberation, of course there is still the Supreme Court uh, ruling and, and things like that, but we don't see people on the street anymore. Because people now know what are left to be done, and before that's done, the MOTs, the Ministry of Transport, keep finding it, and people generally think it's a good idea. So, so that's it. Now, obviously, you, uh, when you were talking about this.